Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I spoke to Tom Sherrington. But before we dive into all that, a quick word from our sponsors. Cue the fancy music. This episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast is kindly sponsored by White Rose Maths. Now, as mentioned in previous sponsor slots, despite coming from the wrong side of the Pennines, I cannot help but love White Rose Maths for their quality maths resources. But as a secondary school maths teacher, I must confess I've often felt a little bit left out with all the quality stuff my primary colleagues can access. Well, I need feel left out no more, because from September, the White Rose Math schemes of work span reception right through to year 8, with year 10 chucked into the mix too. And they are free, and will remain free forever. Nice. Now, one of the most regular requests from schools and teachers is resources and materials to go alongside these schemes. So, never wanting to disappoint their public, from the 1st of July, White Rose Maths are offering some brand new student worksheet resources. They've produced a write-on version, as well as a display version, if you want to display the question on the board, as they know some schools don't like worksheets. And believe me, our maths department photocopying bill is testament to that. White Rose Maths have also provided the questions on PowerPoint, so teachers can use them large in front of their class. And if that wasn't enough, they've also designed a set of purposeful practice questions that will be suitable for students at all stages of their journey. Now, I've had a look at these and they are absolutely brilliant. And I've asked White Rose if I can put a screenshot of some of the samples on the podcast show notes page so you can take a look too. As a reminder, these materials are for reception through to year eight and schools don't have to be following the White Rose math schemes to use them. And last, but certainly not least, White Rose Maths have acted upon many requests to offer a digital version of their popular training courses. As a starter, they've digitised their popular bar modelling training so that schools can have access to their training at a time that suits them. The bar modelling training takes people on a journey from the basics right through to some advanced Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4 topics. We actually had this training at our school last summer and it was superb. The videos to accompany this training are short, professional and engaging and can be watched either collectively as a maths team, possibly over a series of departmental meetings, or teachers across the school can self-study and progress at their own pace. So if you haven't had the opportunity to have face-to-face training with White Rose Maths, you've now got another option. The worksheets and videos will be available on a subscription service reasonably priced with funds going to White Rose Maths to help them continue doing the great work that they do. Individual subscriptions for teachers and parents will also be available. So to find out more about these exciting developments, that's the free schemes of work, the accompanying material and the online training, just head over to the White Rose Maths website. That's whiterosemaths.com. 
And remember to check out the screenshots on my podcast show notes page to get a little bit of a teaser. White Rose Maths, giving people from Yorkshire a good name. And if, like White Rose Maths, you are interested in spreading the word about your product, service, or event to thousands of the very best listeners in the whole wide world, then just drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to find out about the sponsor packages available. And there's a link to that email address in the show notes. Anyway, back to today's episode with Tom Sherrington. Now, Tom is an experienced former head teacher and teacher who now works as an educational consultant. He has worked in and led comprehensives, grammar schools and international schools for 30 years, which gives him an incredibly wide range of experience to draw upon. Tom's also a popular speaker at events such as Research Ed, is the creator of the very popular and thought-provoking blog, TeacherHead.com, and is the author of one of my favourite education books of recent years, The Learning Rainforest, Great Teaching in Real Classrooms. Now, long-time listeners of the podcast will know that this is actually Tom's second appearance on the show, and if you haven't already, I'd strongly recommend you check out Tom's first interview where we cover the key ideas from The Learning Rainforest. But Tom is back with a new book and back with a vengeance because it is a book that is making waves around the country. Indeed, some schools are buying copies for every single member of their staff. The book in question is Rosenshine's Principles in Action, which takes Barack Rosenshine's Principles of Instruction and showcases what they might look like in the classroom. But we didn't just stick to discussing the ideas from Tom's book, because when you get chance to speak to somebody like Tom, the opportunity to delve into other fascinating areas of education simply proves irresistible. So in a wide-ranging conversation, Tom and I discussed the following things and plenty more besides. What has Tom learned since we last spoke? What has he changed his mind about? What are some of the key features of successful schools that Tom has worked with over the last year? Then we dive into all things Rosenshine. What's Tom's favourite principle? Which of the principles is the easiest to put into practice straight away? Which principle feels a little bit counterintuitive? And then is there a danger that these principles could be misused in schools? And finally, will we one day look back at Rosenshine's principles in the same way that we now look back at learning styles? Hmm. Anyway, I absolutely loved this conversation. I always get loads when I talk to Tom, and I'm so pleased that I had the opportunity to go deep into this fascinating area of teaching. Now, the usual plugs. My book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths, is still available from all good and all evil bookshops. However, having seen Tom's sales of his Rosenshine book, perhaps I should have called it How I Wish I'd Taught Rosenshine. Mental note for next time. And if you want to sponsor the podcast, then drop me an email and you can now support the podcast via Patreon and buy me a Mellow Birds a month. And I'm so pleased that a few of you have signed up to do this. I'm going to be giving you a shout out in a special podcast later this summer. Anyway, details are in the show notes or via patreon.com forward slash Mr. Barton Maths. And I'm also hosting a brand new series of podcasts called Inside Exams, where I go behind the scenes of an exam board, asking the questions that you want answering. Just search for Inside Exams wherever you get your podcasts from or follow the links in the show notes. 
Anyway, without further ado, I will hold him back no longer. Let me introduce to you Tom Sherrington. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Tom. So first off, welcome back to the podcast. You're in an illustrious small group of people who make their second appearance on the podcast. How does it feel to be back? Oh, I'm honoured. It's, it's really exciting <laughs> to be back on the podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed the last one. Um, and I've listened to quite a few others since, so... I feel honoured to be involved. Oh, that's great. Superb. Well, now, the, the problem I've got here when I have guests returning is I can't do my usual speed dating questions because you've already answered those. So I've got a special one just for you. And uh, you'll kind of determine whether I ask this question ever again. So there's a lot of pressure on you here, Tom. But that is, I wonder, who was your favourite teacher? This is a great question. I, I wrote about this teacher in, in my book, The Learning Rainforest, actually. It's a teacher called Mr. King. Uh, and he was my favourite physics teacher and i really liked him um he if, if you're trying to imagine uh, neil tennant from the pet shop boys <laughs> teaching <laughs> physics um that's that's in there he was very dapper very suave and very kind of restrained in the way he he, he spoke but he just and that's what i liked about it he he, he taught the physics uh, like in a very pure sort of way he let the physics do the talking and then he, he was very sort of disciplined without ever needing to raise his voice just he just didn't mess with mr king but he, he just made the lessons just seem so interesting and he also got asked to get our hands dirty in doing things so he used to run this electronics club after school which sounds incredibly uh, nerdy but it, it, it was just the coolest thing we, we made this um electric organ in in something like 1980 with, with these sort of little capacitors which you had to tune and you could play a, a tune on them and it was just all you know soldering and i just absolutely loved it so i he just made it seem really like the best subject I, and as soon as i was in his lessons i just knew that i wanted to do it uh, at university because uh, i just felt like it was the best place to be and did you uh, did you try and emulate his style when you first started teaching tom um i don't think i don't think i did in that sense i don't think that really works anyway for anybody I, I just i knew that the subject was was interesting um and that doing the subject you know practical work and investigations and so on was was part of the interest but i never really thought later i'm trying to be like mr king now i wouldn't i wouldn't have said so but he definitely you know made me want he let the subject come alive and that, that was that was the most important thing he did Fantastic. Superb. Well, um, it's been a while since you've been on the show and last time you were on talking about your wonderful book, The Learning Rainforest. And I thought before we dive into your new book, just a bit of a catch up. So my first question for you, Tom, is um, have you got an example of something you've learned since we last spoke? Um, well, there's lots of things. I, I think there's there's new research that's come out. There's new ideas. And I suppose the one the one idea that I, I didn't include in the book which I would do now, it is the idea of learning being a generative process. And this is something which is very explicit in the paper that I read last year called Marge, a, 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 a book by Arthur Shimamura, which I've written about on my blog. And for me, I mean, I know other people have written about this before. I just, you just these things don't always penetrate. But this idea of learning being generative, you need to create a version of what you think you know 
in order to evaluate whether you know it. And otherwise, you can be kidded into thinking you know something just because you 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 you, you look at things and they seem familiar. And, and that to me is such an obvious idea when you think about it. But I wasn't explicit about that. So when you're talking about retrieval practice, uh, it's the idea that actually every time you think about anything, you're retrieving, you're constructing a version of what you think you know. Even if you're applying something quite fluently, it's still freshly generated every time. Uh, and it sort of explains all sorts of things around, you know, the, the way misconceptions can come in. And it explains how you need to have a check. You need to have a verification process for when you've produced work. Otherwise, you can consolidate wrongness unless you've corrected yourself against some sort of set external source. So I, I think that was very been very useful and i wish i'd i don't wish i'd read it before because i had enough to say but <laughs> that's certainly um uh, you know a, a a piece of thinking which i thought was really really precise and i really really have liked it's great and, that um that just on that on that marge book um, yeah. I, I came across it when when you when you blogged about it it's, it's free isn't it like well, what's the history yeah. what, what's the history behind it um well the first um time i came across it i think was um it was all like in Ollie Lovell, I think, promoted it because because Dan Willingham had tweeted out that some obviously in the world of cognitive scientists they know each other and he just said you know Shimamura has just produced this book for free it's a PDF here it is um, yeah and he just did obviously you know in his university work written this put these ideas together and just banged it out as a free ebook amazing um, and there it is so that's that I came across it via Ollie Lovell but but through you know that chain so this is this is how twitter is so great you know <laughs> and um listen, listen to this podcast tom that they're always on the lookout for practical takeaways so so now you you've, you've learned that from marge if you were teaching what well, would it change your practice in it in any specific kind of tangible way yeah it would it, it would it would mean make me much more likely to make sure that whenever you're doing a task you you, you make sure that uh, at some stage, you, you take all the supports away so that students have to do it for themselves without help and on their own, because that's the only true test you have of whether they know something. And to be much more confident with that, that you're not allowing that to be fudged into, um, you know, people working together or copying each other's answers and working together and or, or, or constantly having the, the little crib sheets, all of that. No, you just need to remove that because until you take it all away, and let the students think, like, do I really know it now? And get them to kind of express that to you. I'd be saying, like, come on, I need to see a lot more you telling me what you've understood. Um, and, and I would be much more in, in, intensive around that. And I think otherwise, you, 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 what you tend to do is defer it. You think, well, I kind of, we've teed it up, we've kind of laid it out there, and eventually it'll, they'll, they'll kind of pick, they'll kind of consolidate. But I think, no, I need to, I need to um, be doing this much more much more intensively with everybody. That's the thing. You, you, I would be much less likely now, I'd say, to take one or two samples from a room to really tell me very much. Got it. Got it. And um, the, the, your answer to this may, may be the same um, as your answer to the first question, Tom, but I wonder, is there anything you've changed your mind about over the last, say, 12 months or so since we last spoke? <laughs> yeah, I, in fact... I, I, it's, it's really good. I got picked up on this um, after someone re listening to the last podcast uh, about a, a, a thing I spoke about 
around the lesson I, I saw around pi being introduced by by um kind of experiment yes yes and and you know this just chat uh, to be honest I, i'm going to be apologize to him and say i right now i can't remember exactly who it was but i um i'm, I'm familiar with him but i just can't remember exactly but and I, what I, what I, my mistake was this, that when you're talking about ideas in a chat like this or on Twitter or in blogs, it's very easy to fall into the trap of being very kind of absolute about things. Mm. You, know, you, you, you play into this whole ludicrous polarity and binary thinking, black and white. And it's just a big mistake to do that. So when, I, when I'm sort of glibly chatting to you going, it's just wrong, you know, to, to do <laughs> that, that's, just, that's just rubbish because it, it's not wrong. It's just... In that lesson I was describing, it hadn't worked, and it had caused a problem actually. So it's problematic, but it's not wrong. And you know, if you're a teacher, where in your context, where you know your students and you teach in a certain way, and you feel like introducing pi by getting a feel for the that's roughly three or, or whatever, and that's kind of what your goal is, and then you you know you go further, then why why then that I can see why a teacher would think well that's really that's what I wanted to do, and that's why I feel like it was a successful activity. And having me on here saying it's wrong, it's just a, a total wind-up. <laughs> and, 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 and that's problematic because then it means this, the discussion we're trying to have, which is the whole purpose of this podcast and the thing is to help people improve their practice. It just puts up a barrier. It doesn't actually help someone improve. It actually puts them off. It makes you think and, – and I think we should be much more intelligent around this type of stuff, you know, people who are commentators and bloggers and writers and – you need to be much more sensitive to the fact that teachers need to improve themselves. And, and you don't actually have um, generic standalone strategies which exist outside of a person delivering them. That's a, that's a nonsense. Teachers are people who will be trying to improve as people uh, in their practice. And if, you, and if you can't make that person do something different, by kind of bringing them to the table with a new idea, then then you've lost. Then it's and, and so I, I really regret that. I think and to be much more subtle about saying yeah, this can work, this can work. Try this, try that, and think about why it might work. And maybe this is a good bet, and that is a less bad bet. But when we start saying rubbish, wrong, it's idiot. It's idiot speak. It, it's it's. I think it's a, a kind of a, a horror in our kind of whole culture of discourse, which we have a lot of this going on. Twitter doesn't really help with that in a way. It, it invites it, in fact. So it, it winds me up when I see it. So I think when I've done it myself, I'm kind of cross with myself for having played a part in this kind of culture of a polemical, polarity, you know, polar enforcing. Uh, even when I feel quite strongly about certain things, I still have to be careful that when you're when you're even really promoting idea, you're not saying yeah, but it's it's not the only thing in life, you know. It's I really think this might help, but I don't know that any teacher, particularly in their world and how, who they are. And I, and I do think that's important. So that's the thing I've changed my mind about is, is to be, you know, is to think much harder about. So in that lesson, pi, you know, it's, the question is, when might it be a good idea to, to experiment with measuring the circumference of a circle and dividing by the diameter that you measure with a ruler to get a feel for the size of pi? in the context of introducing the notion that it's a constant. And that is a much more compli complicated uh, and subtle context specific thing than I was, than I was allowing. Got it. That's a that's absolutely fantastic answer, Tom. And, and you're right. I think, I think the key to that is that 
yeah, if, if you say something that, that brings the barriers up straight away for, for a lot of people, um, it does it does shut down everything else that, that comes after it. And there may be some real subtle, important points that come. And we, we last time we spoke for nearly three hours. And yeah, yeah. If, that, if that stops people listening to, to those bits, that's that's important. Well, that's a fant- fantastic answer to that, Tom. I'm going to be reflecting on that myself in, in the way that I come across when I'm lucky enough to, to speak to teachers. I, th- I think you've hit on something there. Um, my final catch up question for you tom i know that um every, when i obviously follow you on twitter and when i'm lucky enough to bump into you at conferences i know that you've been visiting so many schools and working with so many different teachers over the last 12 months this may be an impossible question but have you picked up on any commonalities any traits of, of really successful schools that perhaps teachers listening to this whether they're head teachers heads of department or, or just classroom teachers can learn from well what are some of the traits of successful schools that, that you've come across I've been thinking about this question because I, I, I think, again, really, really important not to generalise. I'd say that if I can generalise, it's it's where the school knows where it is in the, in its journey and knows where where and when to be tight and when to be more loose. And, and that's the, using that classic kind of tight, loose framework. Or um, So I, I've been to some amazing schools which are you know, in quite difficult situations where there are quite a lot of young, new staff, say, um, recruitment issues maybe, and less specialist teachers. And and rightly, they've been quite kind of precise about what they want people to do, and they're working really hard on that so that they've got some, they're, they're, they're building quality through a, a kind of a, a working around some quite specific teaching learning ideas, say, so that it, there's a there's a, a nucleus of ideas, really. at least we're all kind of working on this. And I think that's really, really sensible. But at other, other schools where they're just flourishing because they have this kind of uh, maturity to them. And I suppose my favourite schools are where, you know, which you just think, wow, what, what, what an amazing place. It's where they have this sort of self-confidence oozing and, it all, it, and from that flows this amazing sort of trust, professional trust. And teachers are encouraged in their meetings to take ideas and make them their own and do things with them and push and push back. And But there's a kind of expectations drive all the way along, but no one is mandating the exact form that anything takes. So you don't have the checklists and the top-down stuff. It doesn't feel like that because they don't need it. And that's what I think makes a great school. And then you realise that you're ready to go now if you go and, and, and you – you, you, you kind of fuel underneath rather than sort of mandating from the top. But not all schools are ready for that. And I, I think there's an honesty there that some schools say, look, you know, I, I can't do that because I don't have the capacity in that team, for example, and need to be more, we need to be much more sort of tight around certain expectations and practices at this stage. I, I, I think that's, that's important. So that's why, saying one or the other is good is, is wrong. You really have to really see exactly where they're at and who they've got and who the people are there. It's fascinating, isn't it? Cause, uh, I know D- Dylan William, he's, he's a, a man who just 
seems to spew out memorable quotes left, right and centre. But, but one of his that I, I particularly like is that well, one of the keys to learning is to know exactly where the student is. And if, if you don't know where they are, then it's it's impossible to teach them well and, and, and help them learn better. And it's as, as you're saying there, it's exactly the same with schools, Tom, isn't it? If they, if they don't have a sense of, of where they are in the journey, it's, it's problematic. And whenever I'm lucky enough to work with schools, a mistake I often see, and I think it is a mistake, is they'll try and emulate the successful school down the road and they'll try and borrow practices that they're doing but as you say if, if the staff aren't ready if they're not at that point in their journey it can be really counterintuitive and does that make sense definitely yeah i, I totally agree with that I, I suppose if there's one general thing which which i'd say is a common feature of mm. all those different types of schools is that they have a, a cpd culture which is sustained and built in throughout so that there's a where, where I feel like, well, well, you, 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 I always check this, you know, when I'm there to see, you know, where what's happening next, and where I think, well, there's a there's a huge chance here for this to just go well is when you hear that there's a over the course of a year, the teachers meet regularly, they're given the time, the time is protected, the teachers talk positively about the time they're given for thinking, for collaborative learning, for for preparation, and for talking through all these ideas, and they feel the sense of possibility mm. and that's common to both those sort of ends of the, of the scale where i feel like oh yeah it's well gosh i wonder how this is going to go and i leave feeling a bit well i wonder it this has been a bit of a you know hit and hope job this is where they talk like well, that's not on the cards you know that their time is robbed all the time they don't quite know exactly when the next cpd meeting will be um and, and that type of thing and that, that's still i still come across that fairly often but so that, I, I think that's a kind of a common thing that, that any great school has built in professional learning time uh, as an absolute top priority. It's fascinating that as well, because I see kind of two two types of that when I'm lucky enough to visit schools. You, if we take the group of schools for whom have this kind of dedicated CPD time scheduled in, there's still kind of two levels to that, I find. And I don't know if you agree. You have the one that's kind of really structured that, that staff know this is my time and this is who I'm working with and this is our focus and so on and so forth. But then I've also seen the flip side of that, where it's um, OK, this is our dedicated time for cpd but we're just going to use it to have, have a bit of a chat and sometimes a bit of a moan and, and we're a bit loose on what our kind of priorities are and what our aims are and so on and so forth so again i don't know if you'd agree tom but it is, it's one thing having the time but it's also that structure's got to be in there hasn't it where where staff know what they what they want to get out of it and have the means to be able to to try and get that out of it and i, I wonder what have you seen from schools to to make that really work um, well, I think I think well, there's a, you have to have accountability around that. So I, I think having accountability around the right things is is all good. Uh, you know, rather than sort of you know book looks and that kind of stuff being the driver, it's you know what's your plan for you. So for example, you know when I go to somewhere like Oldham College, you know the ha fa faculty leaders, one of the things I'm asked to do to help with their program is um, I, I meet them and they talk me through their their CPD plan which they have every two weeks, they have like 90 minutes with a team of tutors. What, 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 what's the sequence of what are you thinking you might do and how are you planning it and what are you focusing on? And they have to talk about it. And then they have to, you know, people sometimes seeing the leaders go along and look. And another place, um, school where they work in, in triads, where, you know, three teachers work together throughout the year. And they have to, 
every month uh, a senior leader meets with them and they have to report back this is what we're doing this is what we're working on this is how it's going and that's their whole cpd drive and that's their professional accountability process as well so it, it's not sort of soft and woolly it's it's driven it's high quality but it's um it's regular it happens it's it's protected in time yeah so exactly if it's just like off you go <laughs> you, you, you you, you don't know you're going to get good things out of people all the time. Um, but I do think sometimes I, I, I get a bit of a twitchy like response when I think, oh, there's just no trust here, is there? Because you kind of don't trust those people to go off and work. You, you just think they're not going to do it. And that was, you always think there's something not quite right there when you don't trust a team of people to go and use the time they're given well. And um, sometimes you have to get in amongst. Yes. You know, I, I do think, um, you have to model it. You have to take it seriously. You know, I, 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 you know, tell I think is always a good sign is when the head teacher is in the CPD when I go. Yes. Uh, and doesn't just isn't saying, oh, well, off you go, have a good day. You know, they're there. <laughs> um, and, and also, you know, the, the, all the SLT in their departments are at the sessions and, and you pick that up. You say, well, as SLT teachers of your subject, do you go to your department CPD? And if they say, oh, of course, you know, you think, Right, I, I trust what goes on here because that's also a quality control thing. They're in amongst, they're, they're walking the talk, um, and if they're, you know, they, uh, I, I think that those sorts of things are important. If you've really privileged the time and you you you, you mean it, you're there. Of course, there are other variables. I mean, sometimes all the SLT are on the gate, you know, on doing duties while the staff are free to do their training, and and that's that that can be the reason. But it's always good when when the leaders are. I'm doing it. I, I, I completely agree. And I'll um, just, just before we, we move on from this, just just one final thing from me. Um, at the time of recording, I've just, just got back from uh, doing uh, some talks with Dylan William. So I've got all his thoughts and ideas buzzing around in my head. And one he said that I, I just made a note of straight away because I thought this is absolutely brilliant, this, is he said that one thing that effective school leaders do to help support their staff, and this could be heads of department, this could be heads of year, whoever it is, deputy heads, one thing that, or even mentors, in fact, of student teachers, one thing that they do to support their, their staff is they praise them for taking a risk before they've taken it, as opposed to praising them after they've taken the risk and it's paid off. And I thought that seemed a very subtle distinction. But then when I thought about it, that that's that seems so, so smart that because I've been guilty of that before. My student teacher has has tried something. It's worked. And I said, brilliant. Well done for doing that. But the important thing is, is praising them beforehand, saying, yeah, I can see you've thought this through. We, it could go either way, but you, you, you've, you've planned it. You've got an idea. So this is the time I'm giving you the praise. This is the time I'm saying well done before you do it. And I think that subtle change for me, I could imagine if I, if I was um, on the receiving end of that, that would make me much more open to, to developing and trying things out. Do you like the sound of that, Tom? Yeah, I do. And I, and I, and I, and I, think, um, I, th I think that um, can be embodied into a process. So... So, for example, the triads thing or the kind of inquiry project type framework for CPD almost builds that in. You're saying, find out what works, go and go and see. And that's what we want. We don't want you to sort of do these set piece things and evaluate. And it, 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 it embedded in that is this idea that you're going to do something which we don't entirely know if it's going to work or not. Mm. And and so that's celebrated right from the off. Um 
but you have to then also allow them to be able to come back and say, nah, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not trying to, you're not looking for proof. Yes. Um, and, and then making people feel confident that's what you, that you really mean that when you say it is, is important. One of my favorite things I've, I've, I've been involved with recently was, um, a day at, um, Turton School in Bolton where, uh, I was, I was part of the quality assurance process for some of these triads that they do there. And in a series of triads, I had an hour with them in a series and they, they talked through that. And it was just inspirational. There were three relatively young MFL teachers talking about their different approaches to MFL teaching using different retrieval methods and so on. I thought it was brilliant. Just so interesting. And they, they were contrasting the different successes and by looking at not by just reporting, but by showing. Here's the, here's the books, here's the work that my students did with this, and let's have a look at yours, and what do we think? I think it's always superb. This is, this is what CPD should feel like. It's proper interrogation of processes and open discussion. Uh, you know, that, that's how it should feel. And um, so there's a sort of evidence space, so looking at retrieval methods, which are evidence-based, but how, that, how does that work in MFL? Well, there's, too, there's tons of ways. So you have to look at, look at it in, in depth, were they taking a risk? Yeah, because they were doing things they hadn't tried before, even though they would they borrowed them from somewhere else in a couple of cases. But that they hadn't tried them in that place. So all that, all that type of thing is where that type of risk taking is concrete. It's not just some vague notion. Got it. Fantastic. Um, right. Well, um, I don't think I've um, spoken to you in the last year or so, and you've gone more than about 10 minutes without mentioning Rose and Shine. So I imagine you're getting a bit twitchy at this stage of the conversation, Tom. So we best, <laughs> we, best, we, best, right. we best bring it in. Um, I mean, my first question is, just give us a bit of a background. What, what, what's, the, what's the history of the, of the Rose and Shine paper? And, and when did you first become aware of it? I think I, I think like a lot of people, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember the date exactly, but it's probably <laughs> some sometime in 2017 where it's not long time ago, not not that long ago, where I think it's probably Oliver. It's Oliver's fault. Oliver Cavidioli. He he tweeted his lovely blue graphic that he has got of the ten, uh, you know, Rosenstein's principal instruction, and I saw that all over Twitter, and I and I just thought, and I, and I went to a couple of schools where it was laminated on the wall like it always is, and so. And I realized straight away looking at it that it looked nice, but that it wasn't the paper. You know, the paper is something else. So I thought, well, what is the actual paper? Um, I meet so many people who've only got the poster and not read the paper. It makes me mad, you know. But anyway, because um, it's just ready to you just Google it, you know, Rosenshine, bam, free PDF. I thought, wow, how amazing. This thing is just there. And look, it's only a few pages long. So I read it and it just, no, I just liked it straight away. But well, I like the whole idea that it's, in the classroom, this, you know, the evidence says this in the classroom, it says this, and it's that rhythm to it, which just I straight away just thought how, how, how clever. And it also, it was referencing all these other things that I'd already heard about, like schema and retrieval practice. And I just thought, God, it's all connected. This is, this is great. So I liked it because it was linking together lots of things which I'd already heard about. And there are 10. I mean, 10 is good, isn't it? Because it's just, it feels like it's neat. And you just think, well, it's already, when you list things, I mean, there are actually 17 in his paper. They're like 17, but 17 is too many. It's complicated. And so, yeah, so that's why I liked it. And and then when I'm, when I was employed to go to, um, oh, and this is my job now, isn't it? So I, I, I go to schools all the time to do training and I, and I often people ask me, well, what could we read? And I just think, well, I'll read this because it's the easiest thing to do. It's the, it's free. Everyone can have a copy. 
you can email it to people and it covers loads of bases. And I can't think of a better, I can't think of a better paper to give people when you want strategies. If you want people to read something about evaluative, you know, what works, what doesn't work, then you might go for the, in the same series, the John Donlosky paper, the sort of toolbox paper, because then he says some things work better than others. And it, it's a different type of paper, which is evaluating different memory strategies, saying some work and some don't. But the Rosenshine is, you know, principles of instruction. So if you want a whole staff to engage with a set of ideas, you know, relatively quickly and easily, that, that I don't think there's a single better source than that. If there was, I mean, I'd love it someone to show me it, but it's not, it's on the right side of um, being too basic. It's not too basic. It's packed with ideas. So it's, it's not patronizing to anyone. And it's also well within anyone's reach to read in a you know, reasonable amount of time. Um, so that's the reason I've, I highlight, I, I came across it so much because I found it as the most useful thing to give people to get them on the page with research into practice. And and who who was Eton? Who who, who was Rosenstein? I'm, I'm aware he, he passed away a couple of years ago. Who was he? And when did he first put this paper together, or the first version of it? Yeah, well, I mean, I looked him up. It's like he's it's funny because he's he died in 2017. Uh, he 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 wrote. Um, he was a history professor, uh, a teacher in the early 60s, and then he went to. I mean, I don't know his full career, but he basically went to the university, got a university job after about teaching history for about six years in high schools and started teach, teaching and psychology, studying psychology and teaching about that. He's obviously interested in it. And so through the 70s, he was researching and uh, observationally. I mean, that was that was seems to me the main focus of his research, looking at what effective teachers do. So the first paper, is, I, I think it's absolutely superb. It's, it's something, I, I have a little screenshot of it on my blog somewhere, but in 1982, I only did a Google search. And I, and I know this because some, um, some other people have sent me these links. You know, have you seen this? Have you seen that? So um, in 1982, he, he sort of put forward a paper for a, a, a convention in America, in American edu- in a conference, uh, where he, he, he talks about teaching functions, and there are six. Um, and, and they're based on observing what effective teachers seem to do in common. And included in that are things like checking for understanding, which I'll talk about later on, I guess. But uh, and then in 1986, he kind of writes a paper with with another colleague um, called the Teaching Functions. That's 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 why people who <laughs> sometimes just annoys people. I don't know why it annoys people because people go, "Oh, this is nothing new." As if every idea you talk about has to be a new idea. <laughs> no, no, you've been teaching for for millennia. You know, there's <laughs> nothing new about this stuff. Of course not. Um, the beauty of Rosenshine is that he is literally describing what effective teachers do. So, of course, it's not new. It's just the stuff which kind of holds over time. And uh, so, yeah, in 1986, he wrote that paper. And why? In 2010. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, go, keep going. I don't, I don't know the t- in the time gap between. In 2010, the, the, um, there was a kind of pro- publication. He turned it into these 10 principles, and that's published in this uh, um, American Institute I have to, I'll have to look it up, the actual kind of descriptor of it. This um, American, I could look up my book and get the reference if you want. <laughs> nice plug for the book there, Tom, as well. I like yeah, but, but basically, he, he, he um, yeah, he, he published the, the text, which now everyone knows, is the 10 principles for the first time 
And then 2012, it was just published almost verbatim in the American Educator magazine. That's what everyone sees. Yeah, so that, that's the history of it. So the, Ameri- the International Academy of Education, the series of a funny, long, thin pamphlet called The Principles of Instruction. But So there's, there's a morphing. And, and what's interesting, between 1986 and 2010, Rosenshine has introduced ideas from cognitive science, which happened sort of around you know, memory, retrieval practice, schema, all that type of stuff, into the language. Whereas previous to that, he's he's talking more about just what teachers are doing in the room. You know, so it's this link between observational research and kind of a kind of more theoretical idea about what's going on inside your brain, which makes it kind of really sing together. I think. It's, so that's it's, who he was. I mean, I, you know, I guess and there's a brilliant talk of him actually. There's a thing on YouTube. He's talking in about 2001. This really, really um, long lecture which he gives um so you can see him in action on youtube if you google him and uh, you know he was talking at conferences in the early 2000s about teaching um it's, it's brilliant it's, it's it's good stuff it's fascinating tom this because uh, and I've, i spoke to mark mccourt on a recent interview and he, he got mad at me for for my ignorance of, of the, the term mastery because i made the claim that mastery is is being talked about now uh, more than it has certainly throughout the rest of my career and he said i was clueless because I, I just missed it i hadn't been listening out for it and so on and so forth but sure like I haven't I haven't heard Rosenshine. Be, I, I've been teaching this my 15th year. I, I'd never heard of Rosenshine before, like you, about 2017. And likewise, um, cognitive load theory. I, I hadn't heard of that before about 2016. And one of Sweller's earliest papers is, is 1982 um, as well. One of his big ones on, on problem solving. So do you have a theory, Tom, why these ideas first kind of started to bubble up in the 80s, but then essentially went quiet? for about 20 years, 25 years, and then all of a sudden have started bubbling up in, in the last few years. Have, have, you, have you any theories of, of, of why that's happened? I just think that our sense of, of self as, as a profession meant that people talking about teaching in universities were just other people. I, I just think the two worlds were just not um, you know, seen as relevant. Like It was just theorising. Um, and you know, the, when I was doing my PGC in the 80s, all the theories were kind of like old ones. Um, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't sort of, they weren't sort of predicated on some science or studies. No one ever talked about that. They talked about people's vague ideas. Um, but, you know, and I just think that the, the idea that there's a profession of people who are actively now studying how teaching works and therefore teachers should take stock of that. I don't think that was, that was that strong. Um, and until, and I said this in the last podcast, until for me personally, until Dylan William and Paul Black did the inside of Black Box, which sort of cut through. I don't know why, how they managed it, but they did. They just cut through because they started talking about what teachers do in the classroom. It just made a total, it made total sense. Um, at a time when it was kind of, I don't know, and there was a groundswell of, of interest then that started. But why it took another 10 years to get to sort of the yeah. 2010s and, and, I think it's partly the social it's social media and it's and it's a de- democratizing of of the discourse that you're not relying on official channels you know you're not relying on um before i mean the tr- in the 2000s you know unless the government promoted something or the tes pr- put an article out or official teacher journal did i mean how would you even know you, you wouldn't even know what was going on 
So with with you know social media and blogging and links fly, flying around, it's just so much easier for the information to dis, you know. You know, Paul Kirshner and and uh, even last week, this 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 is just the most fantastic thing for me. So, um, you know, Ron Berger commented on my on my Twitter feed. I mean, out of nowhere. And I think, man, that's just that's just crazy. You know, Ron Berger is actually aware that I'm, the, you know, that you're even talking about his Austin's butterfly. I just think that that's just epic. And that's why, because there's no barrier. There's no barrier to the information getting around. There's not no barrier. There's just the barriers are just falling down. There are still paywalls and stuff. I still think what well, you go to you go to the Sage website for a PDF and it says thirty five dollars. You think, oh, piss off. <laughs> I'll wait. I'll wait till I find it some other way. But you know, there's still there's still barriers there, aren't there? But why why they put up a paywall around some of this stuff? I just don't understand. And what, one thing that's interesting me at the moment is is on the podcast I'm having a lot of US guests on, predominantly speaking about mathematics, but but just education in general. And um, do you have a sense of whether Rosenshine as is prominent in in the states or even in any other parts of the world, or or is it is it bigger in the UK at the moment? I don't know. I, I don't really have a strong sense of what happens in America. I don't think it's that common. I, I, my, my feeling there is that the dominant discourse, like in, the, in terms of scale, is still around, you know, personalizing learning and um, teach student-centeredness and teacher-centeredness being kind of enemy, you know. <laughs> so... Anything which has instruction on it, I, I think is probably low, low stakes. But I, I, that's my sense. And there's, there are lots of debates around that. Um, but so I don't, I don't really know. But I don't, I mean, he must be well, he must be known amongst the community of the cognitive scientists. I mean, you, you have all the learning scientists crew you know, from Massachusetts and you've got Dan Winningham and, and Robert Bjork. All these people are famous. They're all from America. So I, in that world, there must be. He must be known to them. He must have been. And when I when I when Paul Kirshner came to a talk I did on Rosenshine, freaked me out. He just came and sat there and said, "Rosenshine's a really good friend of mine, so I'm looking forward to your talk." <laughs> oh my god! You know, <laughs> so like you know, in that world he's been known clearly, but but at a level of classroom teachers, it's just you know the the bat that until you know until that American educator got circulated and. I've never asked Oliver this when he first heard about it, but you know, he, he, because I think that's, you know, it's obviously there to be found. And it just shows you how visuals do have importance because they cut through, they get, and they get noticed and, and it, it's a way in. It's, it's a door into further reading. Absolutely. And yeah, and Oliver's coming on the podcast um, shortly. I don't know quite how that's going to work. The most visual man in education on an auditory uh, medium, but we'll, we'll make it work somehow. And um, before we dive into the principles themselves, Tom, um, you, your book um, on, on Rosenshine is is newly released at the time of recording. And it is it's kind of taken the world by storm. Just just give us some of the highlights here, Tom, in terms of kind of Amazon rank and, and stuff like that. And it, you must have been surprised. Oh, I was utterly blown away. I mean, bearing in mind that so for comparison, the Learning Rainforest, uh, after 18 months, it, it sold 10,000 copies, and I was just beyond, you know, overjoyed. <laughs> I just couldn't believe that. And you know, it's it, I think about twice it's dipped under the top 1,000 books on Amazon, um, and it's never been the top of any list. You know, it's never been a bestseller. So 
I, I had modest expectations of this thin booklet. Um, <laughs> I was worried that people would think it was not good value and they'd be going, what is this it? You know, <laughs> I didn't write much. I was asked by the American publisher that does Dinner Williams books. He said, you know, Rosenshine taught, great, why don't you turn to a little booklet? You know, write 8,000 words and that would be great. And I wrote 12,000. So I pushed, I said, look, are you all right with this? Cause I've gone over. So literally that's all it was. So when, when John Cat sort of got the rights to sell it in, in England and they, and they started picking up, I, I just couldn't believe it. And in the first week it sold out 4,000 copies in one week. Wow. So they, they literally had no more stock left at Amazon. And I think they're getting it now. And because of that high rate of sales early on, it got into the top 20 books on Amazon. It, it, I, was at, I was at this party. I said to a friend of mine, oh, you know, I published this book yesterday. And they said, what is it? I said, oh, I'll show you. Let me show, show them on Amazon. I was just going, oh, my God. <laughs> it's, that, it's that number. Like, and it was all, I just didn't expect it at all. It totally blew me away. That My God, it's up this next to Michelle Obama. <laughs> for, one, one, for about two hours, it was actually above Michelle Obama's book on, on Amazon, a book about teaching. I think that's just fantastic. <laughs> Jeez. so yeah it really is really crazy so um you know it, it it'll pay for a holiday <laughs> that's, how I that's absolutely incredible i mean i, I was it was either going to be you or michelle obama coming on this podcast but because you overtook her there tom that's that's why you've got the call for this one so yeah well there you go no, it's 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 gone down now to a more kind of normal kind of level because the level of the frequency of sales is is, is slowed down to a more kind of natural rate i think but it's yeah, and, and what's happened is this, that what people have told me is that they like the fact that it's short, uh, the fact that it's quick, and and, then, and because of that, they've said, and because and it's, like, you know, eight quid a copy or whatever, they've gone, we'll get get one for everyone, or we'll get one for lots of people. So some schools have bought one for every member of staff, and because it's just something you might as well have it, like it's it's got the principles in it, and my introduction to that, and they just think, why not have it? It's a solid sort of thing to have, and so lots of schools have bought many, many copies, and I never expected that. So it, it, it's, um, yeah, it, it's taken me totally by surprise. Fantastic. Well, super. And it's, I must say as well, it's it's a good-looking book as well, isn't it? You, it was it um, Oliver Caviglioli you, you work with on the illustrations, and it it looks great. And I think that's important for a book as well, right? That you can you can open a page. And it's one thing having a page of dense text that's got some quality in there, but you open a page of, of your book and y your eyes are just, you, you're kind of following, you, you're zooming right in on the good stuff straight away. I, I, I don't know if you agree, but I feel the look of it's important as well. I think so, yeah. And, and the, the designers, um, I mean, I think that John Cat has got this good flow now. So Oliver provides some illustrations, but they've got a nice design feel. People look at it, it's the right sort of size. And it, I think the sparsity of it helps. I mean, I do think that there's something to be said for it. And now, I'm now sort of dreaming up, you know, great schemes of writing short books about lots of <laughs> other short papers, you know. <laughs> I, I, there won't be anything as, as similar to this, where lots of people are interested in the book. It's short and sweet, and that's a positive. Because I, I was really nervous about that, honestly, before I was thinking, oh, God, what, what if people just think I'm just like, uh, you know, writing the short thing? But it's the brevity, which is like, boom, boom, boom. This is all you need, and it, it, it cuts the chase. So I, I, I think that's that's uh, been useful. Yeah, but yeah, it visually looks good, and working with Oliver is fantastic. He just totally gets it. You know, really, he's just so brilliant. He's so intuitive around what you might be thinking, and then sorts it all out. 
Fantastic. Right. Well, let, let's dive into some of the principles that themselves, Tom, and um, just kind of a few, a few. Instead of me picking out ones that interest me, I'm, I'm more interested in ones that, that interest you, and, and in particular ones that you've shared with with schools across the country and across the world that, that you've worked with so to, to kick things off do, do you have a, a favorite amongst all the principles in there yeah i think i think the main one that I, I i think is at the core is checking for understanding and i know that also is what rosenshine think thought himself because in that original teaching functions paper that i described he underlines that there's one two three four five six and halfway down the page, checking for understanding is underlined. And I, I think that's the uh, right at the core of it. And, and I also think it's the thing where when I observe lessons, which I do a lot, it's the thing where I feel there could there was always more that could have been done there, nearly always. And I feel like it's as a profession, it's something which we need to think harder about. How do we engineer more um, time-efficient ways of checking for understanding across a class in order to be sure whether we're ready or not. Because what, 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 the reason I think it's so important is this. I'd say that where kids underachieve in school, they are pushed on too far beyond what they can learn um, all the time. And what they and so they have this sort of massively, they have this sort of array of insecure schema for lots of different topics constantly being, you know, uh, built on top of, and they're just not ready because the teachers assuming that they've covered it and they must therefore be ready for the next thing. And they just aren't. And checking for understanding reverses that entirely. It makes you think all the time when you're looking at your class, right? Okay. The ideas are out there. I've modeled it. I've, we've discussed it. If I had some interesting thoughts exchanged, but what's the level of understanding here uh, and checking. So getting back from the students, their sense of what they've understood so that you understand more about what they understand it, it's so powerful it just tells you everything you need to know about consolidate go back push further on faster subtle differences of opinion strategy niche strategy kind of things in maths or you know in science as a science teacher it's sort of linking theory to uh, abstract to you know concrete things all sorts of different niche little bits um, in language you know the fluency with using a phrase or a, a, all these sort of things and so checking for understanding is something which i think needs to be way higher in teachers consciousness <laughs> whereas often you just have this assumption that the, the, the delivery is kind of 90 percent of it and most people probably would have got it and we get away with it so often that we kind of just think we, we can keep getting away with it and of course, the students who struggle, we don't get away with them, and they're the ones we need to worry about the most, I guess. So that's the one. If it, you know, if you had to have just one strategy out of ten, that would be it, I would say. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm glad you've picked this one, Tom, because it's my favourite as well. So let, let's just dig into this a little bit further. Um, one of my favourite quotes from Doug Lemov is, um, I think it, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's something along the lines of one of the most important jobs of a teacher is to distinguish I taught it from they learnt it. And I think that's such, such a big one for me because, yeah, you, you race through the curriculum, um, you get to the end of year eight, you, 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 you teach a class in year nine, you think, well, they've covered this in year eight, they've covered this in year seven, so I'm just going to assume I 
I can I can go ahead from here and build on this. And it's it just doesn't work. Like you say, it's it's, it's a fruitless it's a fruitless exercise. And forgive me, this is this is about the third or fourth Dylan William quote I've I've, I've put in here. But as I say, his his head his quotes are buzzing around my head at the moment. One of the ones I, I heard him say for the first time um, the other week was. He said that a lot of teachers he watches say things like, you're in year nine, you should understand this. And his point there is that's a really stupid thing to say for a teacher because the the way students get into year nine is they get to the end of year eight and have a birthday and then they're in year nine it's not as if you have to qualify or show some understanding to get into year nine and i I just that that really resonated with me so i I guess my question is um if check for understanding is is as important as as we believe it is and rosenshine thought it was what are some of the most effective ways that that teachers can, can do this check for understanding tom what are some of the things you've seen in some of the schools you've worked with well, I think where where um, it's, it's it's like it's like it's a, it's a bit like retrieval practice. It, it's really important to, to to see everything you say as a as a menu, as a repertoire, as a diet. So where at this most checking for understanding has many forms, and it's the it's the accumulation of all of them that make the difference. Not strategy A. And I've got I've got a real B in my bonnet at the moment about this whole thing of you know one strategy being promoted and. It's always a combination of them, and, and variety, I think, is important. So that's the first thing to say. I think the main the main thing is a mindset where the teacher is thinking they need to elicit responses from students, uh, and as many as possible, um, where in an extended form, um, without uh, and without the supports. So um, that that's where I see it being more more effective. So things where the students have to think on their own, and what you know disciplines or timed structures where the students have to work all simultaneously um say do a maths problem and then talk through their answer that type of thing so show me you've understood how did you understand it what did you do and it's all the students narrating their their understanding and that's really important so everyone needs the best strategies i think are where everyone can be checking their understanding at the same time um and then you sample the responses that students are given sort of into a public domain to discuss them um and and, I, and that's something which sounds so obvious doesn't it but it, it's <laughs> it contrasts that with is everyone okay yeah is everyone all right yeah i mean you, we joke about it but I, yeah i see that oh yeah yeah all the time that's literally the whole time is everyone okay everyone all right everyone good to move on have you all understood and and no well, let me just find out and then uh, the best, the, the very best examples are where the teacher will, having got one answer from a student, will so, will solicit others. So that okay, great, that's that's an interesting. So we've got your sense of it. What did you think? Let's hear your version. Let's hear your version. What did you What did you get? How did you work yours out? Or what was your sort of reasoning? Try to see if you can explain it. You've heard theirs. Now let's and and it's like. I find this is the most fruitful part where people are having to ex- explain things even when they've just heard someone else do it. Uh, mm. And because, because you, you still, because you, this is weird assumption that someone said it out loud, therefore everyone probably understood it. They haven't. I mean, it happens to, every time I do this in training, I prove it to people. It's just, you, that person just gave a really good explanation. Can you do it now? Oh, no, you can't. So why not? because oh, I can't, don't quite know the words, so you need practice. And this is the other thing, that the checking for understanding process does two things. It tells the teacher loads about 
what's happening in the, in the, in the room in, in terms of learning. But it also helps the students articulate their thinking as a retrieval act and therefore it's helping them strengthen their, their understanding by doing the, by doing the checking. So it, it, it has that level of as well. So again, let me talk me through, you know, how do you, how would you go about solving this a problem, you know, tricky, um, you know, area problem? How, how would you go about solving it? Let's hear your thought process. What, what steps did you take and what did you take? And getting them to, first I thought this, then I did that. Um, this is all really powerful. So that's why I think it's, 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 it's important. And there are lots of other things. I could go on. Now, at this point, I have to sort of start thinking, are we talking about maths or are we talking about any subject? Because the, the, the crucial thing is that checking for understanding depends on the subject. Um, there is no generic checking for understanding strategy as such. It, it's the process of checking is different in maths, where, where it's easy because everyone could do a problem. Checking for understanding by doing it right there. Mm, yes. Checking for understanding of a poem in a lesson situation is difficult because if everyone writes it all down, how do you get their answers off the page? You don't want them all reading them out. That takes, you know, so it's more discursive, more probing questioning. And the same in science. Science is a bit of a mixture of two. So, I'm, I'm fascinated just on that, Tom, because, again, you could not pay me to teach any other subject for, for this, for, for many reasons. But, but, but that's one of the key ones. Like, how on earth do you do that? Like, well, what, how do you if you want to assess understanding of a poem or whatever and you, you have this discussion? How do we include everybody in that? Because in maths, like you say, I can ask a question. I can ask um, I can ask a diagnostic question that every child has to answer and, and so on and so forth. So there's no opt out. Everybody's involved. How do, te- how do teachers replicate that in, in subjects like English or history and so on and so forth? Well, by doing sort of short timed writing and by doing structured uh, dialogue. You know, so um, if I want everyone thinking about something and talking about it in science as a science teacher, I would say, well, you know, in your pair, talk through an explanation of this, you know, one, and, and they're, they're all doing it. So every, every pair, but for a specific amount of time. Then I sample their discussions. Okay, what were you saying? What were you saying? What were you saying? So I get lots of responses from what they were saying, and I'm circulating as they're doing it. Mm. Same languages, you know, you get everyone rehearsing. You know, see if you can understand this understanding of this tense by seeing if you can put it into practice, or quizzing each other to and fro, or I don't know, putting these sentences into the past tense. Do you understand how well? Let's see if you can do it orally. Let's, you know, talk by speaking it or writing it different different process so there's different things so yeah if, if it's too long you know if you if the task is too long the checking process takes too long so you can't really verify so and that's one of the problems i find in the say english lessons where people are practicing too many things at one time so they, they do a lot of writing and then how do you check all of that well it's difficult so i'm often advising teachers to to do in a shorter more focused activities so that you can see if that particular thing is is forming well before the extended bit especially in primary lessons you know if kids aren't getting a the feel for a, a type of writing you know they're not going to get better at it by writing for 20 minutes and then you checking later they, you know they often they've made tons of mistakes already and it's just a <laughs> you know the checking for understanding is too, is too slow so that, that you have to find the right dynamic for interactive questioning that's the probably the number one um 
just but, just on just uh, just sorry to interrupt just on that tom what, what what's fascinated me over the last couple of months is i'm obviously i'm obsessed with diagnostic questions obviously i have the website diagnosticquestions.com and on there there's there's over thirty thousand maths questions and i and, and i when i first kind of had the idea and started writing them i thought this is a math specific idea and then then I started to think, well, calculations in science, okay, that can lend itself quite well to it. And maybe kind of um, simple translations in MFL and, and so on and so forth. And maybe punctuation in English lends itself well to these multiple choice diagnostic questions. But over the last, I'd say probably six months or so, um, I've been people have been sending in geography questions, history yeah. questions. Like this this idea of a multiple choice, a good, and that there's a, I mean, that's the key to it, a good multiple choice diagnostic question can be used i think it is an example of a, a generic strategy that can be used across cross all subjects of course the content changes and the style of the question may change but the fact that every student has an opportunity to answer the fact then that the teacher can delve back in and say well why did you pick a why did you pick b why did you what why is c there what why do you think the question writers included c what what misconception might c uncover the fact that i can I've got this surface level view of of students kind of initial responses. And then as a teacher, I can dig in deeper and, and delve. I think that for me, as I say, I'm completely biased, but that's my favorite form of, of, of check for understanding. And um, are you a fan of kind of diagnostic multiple choice questions, Tom? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, and especially if they're, I mean, if the time, the time invested in making them is, is massive. And I, I think that's the key. So you only got a bank of them like you have in maths. So that's brilliant because, you know, People, people can just go and find them. The, the fact that the, the thing for the detractors in in in, in the, the wrong answers in multiple choice questions to be diagnostic in themselves rather than just wrong mm. is a real skill, and that's something not every teacher can just generate. So I, I think there's, there's a bit of specialism in there. It's interesting because you know years ago, uh, certainly at A level, in in um, Physics, you know, there were multiple, there were lots of forms of multiple choice questions which were standard practice in the exams, like, you know, which of the following statements is could, you know, true and or where does this, is this true and does it explain this? You know, there's all, you know, and, and there were lots of different form, formulations of the multiple choice that made you think really hard. You used to do a whole hour and a half of just multiple choice questions. And yeah, that, that was very diagnostic the whole time. So you kind of take that for granted when you're just doing it as a teacher put this on the exam but then when it's not there and, and we went from like you know multiple choice questions which is totally taken out of the exam you can people have lost that kind of resource so I, I think you're right there are ways of doing all student response type checking for understanding but but what I think is even within that though you still have to do the the articulation of your reasoning so yes. you know if if and, and sometimes you don't need to do the multiple choice bit first so just by doing it in a kind of more goal-free way. So if someone says to you, explain how you might solve this problem, and you might have an A, B, C, D answer, but you might just, just talking it through, um, have you understood what you would do to do this or that or explain this phenomenon, then, you know, yeah, so let's face it, there are, we could we could, we could, speak, we could spend the next hour uh, writing out or thinking through um, in, for a certain subject ways of checking for understanding but uh, there we go that's that's just, that's the end of this podcast that's it everyone cpd for the next term just do that because <laughs> <laughs> how, how do we how do we involve all the students 
How do we get them all thinking? How do we sample enough responses to tell us what we need to know as a teacher? How do we get the students to verify their answers and fill in gaps? How do we get them to then consolidate? Now, all, all of this is so, so fruitful. It's a couple of ideas I picked up from that Mark McCourt podcast. And if you know what, I was really thinking, I wish I'd heard this before I'd written that Rosenstein book, because I would definitely have nicked it and stuck it in there. <laughs> um, the idea of queuing and recency. Now, these are ideas that every teacher should be aware of. Uh, it, it's such a powerful set of ideas that that the idea that if an idea is queued, you're much more likely to just deliver a, a, a satisfactory response because you're you're being told where to look. Whereas if you're not queued, you have to actually think about what strategy to. It's much deeper, much harder. And recency meaning like the more like time, if time hasn't passed, you're much more likely just to re, just like loop back stuff you've recently told, been told much more fluently. Um, Whereas, you know, give it give it an hour, give it a week, um, is a much deeper test of learning. And Mark seemed to be arguing that it's not even a test of learning if you have if it, if the recency effect is there. So it's not actually learning in a sense. So I, I think that's an important thing to, to really embed in this checking for understanding that you're not just checking for understanding of the thing you've just said. <laughs> you're checking yes. for understanding of the thing you taught before. Um so it's a retrieval thing as well. These things are totally intermeshed. Yeah, I, th I think I think you're right. And, and the thing that strikes me about that, and, I, and it's taken me years to realise this, and I, I feel thick for, for not picking up on this easy uh, sooner. But there's there's two downsides to to getting checked for understanding wrong. I think, and that's firstly, you as a teacher get dodgy information back. You, you assume that your kids have understood something when when they haven't yeah. either recency or cues. So you so you then make wrong decisions going forward. But also on the on the flip side, the kids get fooled into it, and it's it's this idea that oh, I got ten out of ten on that test, so I've understood that topic, and therefore perhaps I don't need to revise this because I, I understood it at the time. And then whenever it pops up, a question in isolation in an exam a week later two weeks later six months later or whatever that's got to be pretty crushing for a kid to think why the hell am i getting this question wrong when i used to understand it and so yeah getting checking for understanding wrong i've realized is, is bad for those two reasons for, for for the teacher for dodgy information but also for the kids whether we call it metacognition or whatever we the kids are being fooled into thinking that they're understanding things whenever they're, they're not d does that make sense at all Completely. Um, exactly. And it's only when you have to do it um, for yourself that you really get a sense of where you where you're confident or where you're not. Yeah, and, you know, it's like it's like the difference between listening to someone speak French and understanding everything they say. Mm, <laughs> yes. And actually having to say it yourself. It's like a yes. totally different thing. It's, it's and, and you think, yeah, I, I understand French. I can read all of that. I can read, personally, I can read quite a lot in French because for my O-level um, and, and to subsequent kind of engagement, like, I can't say nearly any of it. And so when, when you actually have to do maths, for example, and write science and explain things, you know, in an essay on your own, boy, that is a world away from you know, sitting in the lesson thinking, yeah, yeah, no, I get a feeling for this. Yeah, I think I understand what happened in you know, communist Russia in 1917. Yeah, it all makes sense. Right, now tell me about it. Oh, hang on a minute. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, what, where do I begin? Where do I start? What was most important? Help. You know, what's cause and effect? What words do I use? It's, it's, it's a monumentally different thing. And so if you're not rehearsing that and embedding that into the general discourse of lessons, getting students to articulate their thinking, use the words, practice the practice the explaining um 
putting ideas in a linear order. I mean, when we communicate ideas in any, any form, you do them in order. And, but, but when you formulate them, they kind of are a jumble. They're, you don't have to put them in order. They just kind of occupy your brain in a kind of mess of simultaneous things that are happening. And to, to sort of have to sequence them, to communicate them, is a, is a whole performance thing which you're rehearsing as well. Um, I'm fascinated. My son's doing, he's in year 12 now, he's got an exam tomorrow in maths. He's doing C1 and C2, <laughs> for those in the know. Nice. Um, and he's been revising in the kitchen table for the last couple of days. And and and, and sometimes, you know, the, the thing that he comes and says he's stuck on is, multi, you know, factorizing something which, if he did a you know, GCSE factorize, he could do it, bam, straight off. Yes. But in the middle of a calculus question, a final little bit where he just has to, you know, get Y on its own. It, it's a thing where you have to say, well, then you just factorize it. And he goes, oh, God, yeah, of course. And it's just... It's in the moment of the application where he's not, it's not queued up. Uh, it's so interesting that fluency takes, it takes so many, uh, so many levels to it. Uh, so yeah, the more you're doing that, checking and, and involving everyone, and I keep saying this, but it's, a, I think it's the hardest thing teachers need to learn to do. I think all of us, I mean, it's the hardest thing to do is to have these exchanges when you've got lots of people in the room because it's a, there's a, there's only so much time and you have to, some things you just have to do simultaneously or one one at a time, and um, you, there's a trade-off there of time. You know, how many people can I listen to before it becomes feels like the diminishing returns? Uh, and there's no set optimum, but one is never the no, one is never the optimum. I would argue. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. I completely agree with that. Well, okay, so we we, we agree on our uh, kind of joint favourite principle, and also probably the most important principle of, of of check for understanding. I wonder though, Tom, if there's a teacher listening to to this and they're thinking, right, okay, check for understanding. That that's the big one. That's something I'm going to work on. I'm going to need to think about this long and hard over the coming weeks, months, even years, um, to to get right. Is there a quick win? Is there, is there a principle in there that a teacher listening to this, if they wanted to, could use tomorrow, first lesson with, with a class, that, and start to see some positive returns? What, what's a quick win principle? Um, <laughs> well, I, I think, what, what, what can I say? I, I think if you look at the strategies, which are weekly, you know, daily, weekly, and monthly review, it... You, if you're teaching a subject, you need a process for doing that, which is so, you know, it's not it's not a quick win in the sense like it's just a neat strategy for everyone. But it's something which you should be doing all the time it, uh, regularly. So you need to be thinking, what is my way of doing that? So, you know, what what how do I check? Um, and, 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 you know, one of my I, I've written. Uh, roughly in the Rose and Shine book, but it blogs about it. So have lots of other people. Ways of doing retrieval practice, and you need a, you need a method. So I need some process which is a quite well rehearsed routine that I'm going to teach my class when we check our answers. You know, this is how I give the questions. This is how we check your answers, and we do it kind of so often that it's just an absolute routine that we have. And I'd say just think of one of those and just have a have a have a have a couple up your sleeve of types of question and answer test checking type of strategies that, that that's something i'd say because if you're not doing that then you're not really no you can't be sitting there thinking about it in the, in the lesson you have to there's something you can prepare you can get ready 
and so to do it. But if so, that's that's one thing. If you want, if you want something which I would say a kind of habit-changing quick win, it's to introduce what Rosenstrand calls process questions to your daily, your daily routine for teaching. Process questions to make sure every time you ask a question to a student and they give you a correct answer, you follow up with a pro- how did you work it out? How did you know? What was your thinking? So that they have to not only just give you a good answer, but talk about the reason why they came up with that answer and, the, and narrate their thinking. Because this kind of is a metacognitive thing. And I think that if that's seen, if, that, if that's embedded in your routine, thinking about your questioning, rather than being so relieved. <laughs> yes. And go, phew. Yeah, well done. Seven cubed. Brilliant. Well done. You know, it's like, you know, how did you work that out? Did you do it this way? Did you just know it? I think it matters. I think we talked about this last time. The difference between knowing and knowing how. So sort of mm. some things, like, again, it came up in my, in my son doing his revision the other day. He said, now, if, if I know that two to the X is eight, that their X is three, how do I show that? I, I just know it. It's just two cubed. Do I, how do I prove that? Do I have to do the yes. log? Am I allowed to just know that that's three? <laughs> you know? and, and I think that's such an interesting thing. So he, I, was, I was saying to him, don't overthink it. Of course it is. Like two to the three is eight. Everyone knows it. But you're allowed to know certain things. Other things that's you in, show, that's in, that's show the steps. I like that. So what the process questions this and just give us a, give us a couple more examples there. So a child that answers something and you can say, how did you know that? Where did that come from? What, what are some of the other kind of um, kind of lines teachers can, can, can feed in after a child gives an answer to, to delve deeper into this? Yeah. So you might, it depends how the process questions can be where you probe it around a bit, are you linking to probing when you start saying, would it always be true? Or what if it was negative or mm-hmm. are you sort of, you make them think a little bit harder, but definitely just method-wise. You know, how did you know? What was your strategy? Talk us through your thinking. Did you know straight away? And, and I think that's really interesting. Where, where, where in terms of this net metacognition and, and students listening into this in the class is knowing that correctness doesn't just happen automatically. Sometimes you have to trial, you have to sort of think through a process possibility, which you then eliminate before you go down the right path, and that's very, very normal. And, and seeing that as as natural, that you you think, mate, could it be this? Could it be that? Could it be that? Oh no, that's that's the one I'm going to do. And that's what maths people do all the time. You you mentally rule things out without even really talking about those. So, and I, I think that type of thing can come out through routinely saying, "How did you work it out? What was your method?" Um, and, and and possibly to probe prompt them by saying, "Did you do it like this, or did you do it like that?" You know, so it depends on what type of question it is. That, that's interest, interesting, that. And I guess guess an kind of unexpected benefit of that is that you get to find out if they've got it right for the wrong reason, if, if that makes sense. If, if your question was a, a bit of a dodgy one, so an example yeah. in maths would be if you two to the power two and they say the answer's four, if you don't probe into that, they may have done it by two multiplied by two instead of um, like multiplying the number by the power instead of realising what powers mean. So I, I, I assume that's true of other subjects as well, where kids can get the right answer through the, the wrong means, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I weirdly, it's it, because I, I, I think this comes up in my when you do the same sort of talks. Often, you often use the same questions because it's just 
I don't know, you, you just do. And, and the one I often say is seven cubed because it's a, it's good. It's right on the cusp of knowledge and a method, you know. Yes. And a lot of people, that's just like way beyond their range of known number number facts. Mm. Um, so they have to work it out, and they go, well, so there's a good one to explore, and there's loads of ways of working out seven cubed. And so you can, if someone gives you the correct answer straight away, you, you don't really know how they worked it out until you ask them. So, and if you don't ask them, it, it's just a totally missed opportunity, but it also, like on multiple levels, it's a missed opportunity for them to think through and consolidate a method, or even to become aware that there may be of other ways, more efficient ways of sharing the thinking with the, the people who think, oh, is that brainy git over there who happened? <laughs> I mean, like, oh, he's a math freak. I'm not. So therefore, I'm not expected to know seven Q. Yes. You, you just debunk all that stuff. You just know there are things you know, things you might not know. Seven squared. Some people don't even know seven squared just straight away. I mean, even adults, you just go, well, no, you do know seven squared. Think about it for a second. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know it, yeah. <laughs> so, and did you just multiply that by seven or, you know, how did you do it? So it's, I, I think this is fascinating stuff. But um, so there you go. I, I Process questions. And Rosenshine is quite specific about this in the paper. He says, you know, effective teachers not only ask lots of questions, more questions to, to, than, than, than less effective teachers, but they also ask lots of process questions. Whereas less effective teachers, he literally says this, almost ask no process questions at all. So that it, it, it's a it's a it's quite an important kind of distinction between you know the, in, t- in terms of this crude camps that he describes. God, um, I love that. I, I love that, Tom. That 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 is an immediately actionable thing, and it's it's something yeah. that teachers can get better at over time, and, and the kids will get better at as well. But that's something that yeah can can, can be changed can be changed tomorrow. I, I love that one. That's brilliant. Um, can I ask you? Is there an example of a principle that? aside from check for understanding that the teachers could work on long term and i'm thinking here perhaps something like a department's listening to this like a maths department decides okay this is this principle is going to be our focus for this term or an english department's listening or or perhaps two teachers want say one's a history teacher uh, one's a design and technology teacher and they think okay we're going to get together and we're going to try this principle for the next six weeks for the next 12 weeks so what would be an example of something that a, a teacher could try and embed in their practice over a longer time period um well uh, i'd say Probably, probably, I think. Um, oh gosh, I mean, where would it? Where, the, 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 uh, a couple of options I was thinking of there, but I'll, let me go with this one. It's it's the sort of it's modelling. So it's 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 the well, I think it's number four in the strategies where you 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 break down things into small steps. That's number two, and then modelling. So showing it's the modelling. I've worked with a teacher uh, last term, uh, a science teacher in Birmingham, where I was really encouraging him on this, and he just said it was really really brilliant he, he was felt so empowered by this sort of encouragement to to model to 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 stand at the board and with the courage of your knowledge is to go through is to do the answers live and show he, he was like a lot of teachers like didn't want to get things wrong um prepared everything in advance and showed a lot of powerpoint slides of ready-made answers um and i was saying to him look it, it just feels like it, it's you know you'd get a lot of value from just showing the students that these are the steps live do it show them show them how the answers come how you set them out um you know in writing on the board and things like that and 
I, I think that type of thing, modeling the process that you, and then, and then therefore, and then do it again, you know, show the, that multiple examples idea. So modeling to me is, is, and modeling has so many different dimensions to it. And I, I kind of cover this roughly in, in the book. And modeling is, you know, has a metacognitive aspect, but it's also got a, a exemplar aspect. You know, here's one that this is excellent and showing what it, what it looks like when things are done well. Techniques, methods, multiple worked examples, um, showing how you start with a problem and then where you, where you begin. Often that's the, the, the stumbling block. Where do I begin? So what, how do I know where to begin? Modeling your thinking. So modeling has so many different dimensions. And I think there's a department you need to think, where are we at this? Do we have exemplar materials? So I'm going to, in a kind of open-ended subject like art or essay writing, exemplification of the standards is, is, is everything. How do we know what the standard is that we're after in terms of a quality of a sentence or a paragraph or a piece of product that you've made, you know, in art or DT? So that, do we have those things? Do we, have we broken those down into achievable steps? How do we get from being rubbish at drawing to brilliant at drawing? <laughs> incremental steps. Have we thought that through? And then can we show the next step that you might take? If you're here, what would you do next? I, I think that's, that's the key. And in a way, it's the most in, in, instinctive thing about teaching, isn't it? Showing. Let me show you. I want to teach you something. Let me show you. <laughs> and the teachers, Sometimes I, I can't, I meet teachers all the time. Sometimes they think they're not supposed to do that. Mm, yes. <laughs> of course you're supposed to do it. It's called teaching. Show. Show them. Well, but that's well, produced by, you know, like Blue Peter. Here's one I prepared earlier. <laughs> I'm actually acting that out as I sit here. Look. <laughs> I'm actually literally putting my hands under the desk here and bringing up an imaginary object. <laughs> do it, do it so it, in, in plain sight construct the paragraph with people that first sentence that opener that that's how the essay starts what do you begin with and um let's go for something that's not straight out of the squid formula you know let's do something personal you know well i don't know just whatever it is just so modeling i i model teachers expressing themselves through modeling i i I'd love to see way more of that and, and that takes form in every subject let, let me ask you something on modeling, Tom, because I, I, I'm obsessed with this and I, I have a very kind of definite process now for it's a five stage process for doing my work to examples, my example problem pair with with modeling, with silent teacher and so on and so forth that I, I'm really happy with. And it's it seems to have really improved um, how quickly my students kind of take in, take knowledge on and are able to practice and are able to consolidate and so on and so forth. But I'll, I'll tell you something that I've I'm really struggling with and I'm hoping you, you can help me out on this one and it goes back to to what was what we said earlier about check for understanding being an absolutely key principle how much student involvement goes on within the modeling process and i know there's probably no definitive answer to this but just to give you an example um if a teacher's modeling a worked example whether it's in maths or science or whatever um, is, is it good practice, in your opinion, to be saying to the kids, what do you think I'm going to do next? Or why have I done this? Or what would you, what would be the next line? Or is it better to, to go through the process once where the teacher takes ex- essentially full control and then involve the students further further on in the process? Because that seems to be a bit of a, a bit of a conflict whenever I'm working with teachers. How much student interaction happens within the modeling phase? <laughs> No, it's one of those things where I, I just don't think there's a, a, a neat answer to that. It, it's 
you, you kind of get a feel for it. But what, what I would say is the tendency is to for teachers to feel that it's slightly wrong to just go through a whole thing without this, without any student involvement. Mm. Sometimes mm. I feel, if anything, teachers need to be encouraged to, to be that that's okay. You know, no, it's good to a, a fully worked example. Um, but if you just think, phew, I've done that really great worked example. And I have, I have seen lessons, which are the opposite where, you know, that the, the teacher has done this beautiful maths on the board. You think, Oh, good for you. <laughs> yes. good for you do your lovely maths on the board. None of them are doing what you're doing, but no, good job. <laughs> you're having a good time up there. Um, and so that, you know, it, there's a subtle skill, isn't there, of being a teacher modeling with engagement. So eye contact, checking, you know, making people are with you. Um, and maybe because you know your class thinking, I think oh, this is the, this is a crucial bit there. So checking for understanding in the middle. Like, can you, mm. Michael, why have I done that? What, why did I do that there? You know, and checking at that point. But sometimes that can just inter, in, that can just inter, interrupt the flow. So, and because there's loads of if, if it's a short maths sort of pro- problem type thing, then you, you've got you, you've just got ample scope to, to try out, and you can model directly yourself multiple times, and then. And then increasingly ask more interactively and sometimes looking at the whole problem on the board and then running through it again. I think that's what I used to do as a physics teacher um, reasonably successfully is to do it myself, talking it all through all at once. And then with the answer there, talk, go through it again, checking that people understood the steps. But, it, but that, that, and that, that seems to that, that you just do it that way. If you have to, but then sometimes you do need to do the what might happen next, what and some and to see if people would know. But often what happens there is one student already knows, and so they tell you, and you think, oh, well done, exactly, yeah, yes, we yeah, exactly. both sides by by fifteen point two, exactly. But that, <laughs> but that, you don't know everyone else understood that, so you get this illusion of. This is one of the most common things that happens in lessons: is that teachers get into this sort of thing of allowing a kind of chanting back of the next stages as if that means we all know but actually the ones who know know the ones who don't don't say it so you yes you don't get that and and it's them that you need to be worried about the most so yeah so look i mean this is where we get into this crazy a uh, binary thinking <laughs> as a teacher what you're trying to do is be have wisdom and thinking and be thinking who's understood how do i know could I explain it better? Should I ask them a question or should I just tell them? And you have to answer that question for yourself. You, you have to work it out. And with that class and that topic every time. And if you start thinking there's a better way, well, there isn't. And that's not how learning is. Um, and it won't even be the same next time you teach the same topic to a different class because they might have a slightly higher proportion of people who are you know, more fluent or less fluent. And, I just don't think these things are neat. And if we get ourselves into thinking they are, well, we're wrong. So you need to sort of suck it and see a bit, don't you? But definitely, if there's one thing I would say is that it's rare for me to say to a teacher, um, it it, it does happen, but it's less often I would say to a teacher, look, stop just talking the whole time and get asked some more questions. It's much more often I say, show them more. Show, explain it more fully. 
Uh, and I, that's that's true. Hey, I, <laughs> I feel like I'm just talking endlessly here. No, but, not at all. Um, Keep going. Here's the thing I, I find happening. This is so interesting. It's sort of combining the checking for understanding with the modelling is the teacher delusion of thinking they're having a discussion when they're not. <laughs> and I, this is so funny. But I, sometimes I just have to stop myself laughing because I, I, I think, oh, my God, here we go. It's one of those. And a teacher who's often quite popular because they're, the te- I don't know, the, the kids like them and because they talk, they're, they're good storytellers and, and people like that. But the teacher will have this funny kind of way of doing things where they'll say, so basically what happens is, and so the next step is, and someone will just say, add two, good, add two, and then I, and so what I do is, and so we add, we add, and someone will go, <laughs> ten, good, ten, and they, and they think they're having a discussion, but actually the kids have said about four things in, in five minutes, and they've done, they've, they've answered the entire question themselves. And they don't, they're not aware of it. It's funny. Yes. Think, no. yeah, I, it's faster. I've, I've, I've been guilty of that, Tom. And it's often, I, I, I've gone a step further. It's, it's often the easier questions that I ask the kids to get involved in. I do all the tricky thinking. And then it's, and like you say, and then we add, and it's bloody obvious that we add two. There's probably a big two yeah. written on the board or something. And, and again, it goes back to what I was saying before. Both parties are deluded there, aren't they? It's yeah. the teacher thinks, the teacher thinks the kids have got it, but the kids think they can do it as well. The k- kids yeah. are thinking, oh, well, we solved that. It's, it's really dangerous that. I like that. It's like a verbal, it's like a verbal gap fill that you <laughs> just, just to, just to stop punctuate your oratory, you know. And, um, again, it can be, beautiful to be in a lesson with a, a teacher who's just brilliant and you could hear them talk all day and that's great but it doesn't mean anyone's understood it until yes. you check so it's, it can be part of a process it's, it's as long as the, the other process has to come in behind that and of course you know hopefully it does but it, it's making sure that you're aware that okay I'm, I've done a lot of talking now and so I need to find out how much of this you've understood and therefore now we're going to do this and you've got to be really conscious that that has to happen not Okay, guys. So is everyone, you know, that was just the teeing it up stage. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the might, you might have the same answer to both these questions, Tom, or there may be two different ones. Um, are there any of the principles that are particularly counterintuitive to you that you think, oh, that, that, that doesn't feel right? And my kind of second part to that question is, is there any principle that's um, very different to how you used to teach yourself? And as I say, maybe the same answer, it may be different answers. So a counterintuitive principle and or one that's particularly different to how you yourself used to teach. I think, I think, I think I'd say, I think the hardest thing to get right it's the flow. I mean, in my in the way I explain the principles, I use a strand idea. So for me, it's a whole strand of uh, guided practice to independent practice with a kind of high success rate. Um, so it's, it's sort of three principles in one. That that sequence of you know getting everyone doing it right because you're there helping, building confidence, and then kind of making sure then making sure that you kind of pull back and let them do it on their own so it's the high success rate early on i I feel like there's there's an instinct sometimes people have to make things challenging prematurely but it can be you know in some situations that's that's an issue so even like you're not deliberately that they're not thinking oh this is challenging It, it, it just is too challenging so the students are floundering right from the off 
And you think, well, that's and and it's it's not at the level of um, a good a good challenge. It's at the level of kind of catastrophic <laughs> challenge. Like this isn't going to work. They're just all finding it's too hard. Um, and so this like this idea of the consolidation and the eighty percent. If probably the whole thing in Rose and Shine, I'm least sort of I I, I kind of promote least is the number eighty percent because I just think it's a nominal idea that the success rate should be high. The percentage is, you know, doesn't really matter too much. Mm. But the idea that consolidation with what kids can already do as a precursor to stepping, springboarding beyond, I, I think that feels counterproductive because counterintuitive. So you often have, um, so I, I can use it. My, my, my wife told me about a story recently of a, of a lesson where, you know, a student is sort of struggling and, they've been sent out of class with a book to do because they've been you know disruptive and stuff and they were a geography lesson or something and the book the textbook they've been given to go away with to the you know the the, the referral room was had something about alluvial plains on it <laughs> and this this kid didn't even know kind of the difference between rivers and oceans and just it was just like the, like the phrase alluvial you know just a quantum just like a giant leap above where she was and you think you know you imagine sitting in a lesson where everyone's talking about alluvial plains and you just it, it's just way too hard you know you need to talk about it's it just and that, that that type of thing is easy to happen with for kids who just go through bum, bumbling along from lesson to lesson not quite getting it day in day out and and the teachers haven't done enough kind of, well, where well, what do you know then yes what 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 let's go back to that bit that you know and let's make sure we can use those words that you already know, maybe more fluently. Let's let's go back to the maths things you can do, and yes. practice them a bit, and, and you know, give them a workout. And now we're going to see if we can add this thing that's new. But often we just—it's like you know, topic moved on. Bam! Yeah, we got you know, didn't do so well on the last test, but we're moving on to this new topic, building on the last unit that you didn't do very well on. <laughs> happens all the time so that's the bit where i find teachers are not it's almost like you can't bear the idea that it's just constant pressure of getting through the curriculum versus achieving success on the last bit that's not easy i'm not going to blame anyone for anything there it's, it, it is hard but it is sometimes just, just, just it just goes wrong so that that's the thing practice guided practice getting success making it right making people feel successful is all about engineering little steps that can be taken which are correct um not dumping in the deep end and saying yeah let's all let's all just big ourselves up on the high challenge well that, that's important when the kids are ready for that but it's, it's devastating if they're not it's, it's really interesting you say that this um this kind of race through the curriculum is, is something i've often felt as a teacher myself i look at the scheme of work and i think okay maybe, maybe that'll be all right but then you you get five lessons into your allocated six lessons on a particular topic you're only halfway through the the objectives for that topic the kids don't have a flipping clue what's going on but there'll be individual teachers listening to this who like me will be th uh, be thinking well what, what can I do about it? Because I've got to get through this scheme of work. I've, there's a 
Christmas test coming up where I've got to have covered all this content and so on and so forth. So I guess my question is, Tom, what, what, what do successful schools that you've worked with, how, how do they get over this problem that that actually it's, it's quite hard to predict sometimes where, whether kids are going to understand things and at what rate? And at, at sometimes teachers need to be flexible and allocate extra lessons here and there for a particular topic before moving on. Well, what do successful schools to en- do to enable teachers to be able to do that? <laughs> I don't. I mean, I, that, that's that's hard to answer. I, I don't think uh, the schools I know of, I'm thinking of, are successful. Have a neat answer to that. I think what they have is, is the things I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast: a, a professional to discuss, you know, dialogues with, where the teachers themselves are are working that out for themselves uh, in a in a very curriculum specific way. So, um, it, it, you need a repertoire of strategies. So. I always say this to, to people when I'm asked to go and talk to them about assessment. Mm. Um, I, I, before you show me your data, if we find that you know, Michelle is struggling, what happens? <laughs> let's, say, let's say her name comes up red on the on your tracker. So what? You know, and 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 that, let's just let's discuss that first because I don't really before we work out which people are flagged up as problematic. What happens to them automatically? If we look at the data, what's the point of looking at the data? And often that's the thing to start off. And the good schools have got that. Well, we have a range of interventions around the curriculum. So we've got scaffold strategies here. Look, so these are our kind of you know, our scaffold for science writing. And, and we've got our word lists and our retrieval practice methods. And we you know we just go back over those same things again and we'll check them. And a level of repetition in the material that is kind of punctuates the flow. And I, and I think that's where the success comes from. So you've got, say, a core set of phrases in French, for example, which are repeated throughout. So the students build very high fluency with certain phrases so that they've got a bedrock of stuff they can always say, even if they're finding the rest of it hard. And they've got something they can fall back on. And in maths, it's basic number work. You know, good maths departments. You know, it's not always deep end, deep end, deep end. We just do some number games. We do some mental maths. We... You know, there's a repertoire of basic numbers confidence, which is happening all the time. Number bonds to a thousand. Bam. You know, let's do that. Yeah. Workouts. It's it's connecting to all regular routines, which consolidate similar things all the way through. So those are the things I think are successful. Having a set of ideas which are well planned in the curriculum, which are re- con- con- constantly referred to which help all the other spin off. So in science, you know, if you're not talking about the part model for how phenomena work kind of all the time, every time it's irrelevant or energy, then and the students aren't getting that or they're never going to get it. They, 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 they have to, you have to keep going back to that. So it's, it's curriculum. It's all in that curriculum thinking. Um, at the school I know in it where they're doing some brilliant work, I think in, in difficult circumstances, they have this, they've come up with this brilliant idea for English where, you know, they, they've, got, they've got this idea that every poem, every book, every play has a, a central kind of thesis, a kind of, a, 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 and that's what you focus on. You just say, what's the, what's the thesis? What's the, the main point? And if the students don't get that, then the, the, all the rest of it is, is, is pointless. So they, they have a kind of a structure which they refer to all the time. And it's just a, those are the sort of things, I think. It's all curriculum thinking. Uh, that is quite strong uh, in, in the way that the students have a reference points that they're going back to. 
I mean, I don't, I don't know if I'm answering your question here, but it's it's definitely not like about intervention strategies after, mm. or catch-up clubs or that kind of stuff. I, I just think as soon as the answer is intervention strategies, it's 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 when you're in, you know, the, the desperate straits of lastminute.com. And I'm, 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 luckily, because I don't run a school anymore, I, I'm just not particularly interested in that sort of thing. I, I just think, I know you have to do it all, but that's not the kind of the, the core of great teaching. It, that's kind of when things haven't worked earlier. Let, let's focus more on the things which can be better, more successfully. I tell you one thing I think is true is a lot of learning requires intensity, and there's just not enough early enough. So the students are allowed to cruise through, not quite learning a lot of stuff until the intensity kicks on for high stakes moments when it's just all too much. Mm. And I think really good schools make the kids work really hard earlier in a kind of natural kind of way, not in a kind of whip cracking sense, but just through the expectations. And it makes you commit to the thinking. I need to learn this. I've got to learn it. So I, I'm really going to try to learn it. And there's a kind of an urgency, not on time, but in terms of it's not kind of optional. <laughs> you really do need to know it. And I'm expecting it. And those high expectations through like com- commitment to the thinking that's needed to make sense of an idea. Now, if that's not present in year seven, well, it's harder to generate it in year nine and, and so on. Hmm. That's where I think is, is important. It's making the kids believe that in that moment, it matters that you've learned it properly um, and therefore sweat it out and right now. You know, <laughs> That, that's a, that's a whole culture thing. Sometimes it's teacher to teacher. Sometimes um, that 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 capacity to push. You know, if you've got a year three class. Do you feel like you're pushing them? Well, you kind of need to. If you really want them to learn the things you're teaching them, you can't just sort of hope. Oh, it's all been nice. Then we'll drift along. And oh, if they don't get it this year, maybe they'll get it next year. Well, well, maybe. But the ones who won't won't. You've got to make them. You've got to make them. Now, is it right to say to a seven-year-old, you've got to sweat it out? <laughs> well, you know, if you want a kid to ride a bike, you don't just say, well, you know, take your time. Well, maybe you can, but only to a degree. And I, and I do think there is sometimes a little bit of nambiness in there. Is that, am I allowed to say that? But that's how it feels like. I feel like saying to the teacher, come on, push them a bit harder. A bit more demanding, you know, be braver with it. Don't, they're, they're ready for it. They'd love it. They're up for it. I th- it's, it's, it's interesting this Tom. I think it'll be resonating with a lot of um, certainly my maths teacher listeners here because the amount of time that I have taught a year 11 class um, how to add fractions together or how to find the factors of a number or how to I don't know calculate percentage of an amount and they've been doing it like they first learned that seven years ago well first I should say definitely not learned it first encountered it seven years ago eight years ago and again it goes back to a theme that's been kind of coming through our conversation today which is that there's two sides to it one it's um, it's tough for the teacher because it means the teacher can't teach some of the more challenging content because these basics aren't in place but the flip side of it it must be bloody frustrating for the kids to think here's that topic again for the eighth year running well, I didn't get it first time around why am I going to get it this time around and they're, they're for me the worst parts of teaching whenever you're teaching something to kids that they've experienced before they've struggled with before and they already go in with the mindset that I'm not going to get it this time because why, why should I get it this time and I think there's, there's a lot of truth in what you say there tom that 
it's it's identifying these i kind of call them high value concepts this stuff that is the, the foundation the fundamentals and it's trying to ensure kids get it right that first time around and, it, and if that does mean pushing them hard then then that needs to be done because we know it's going to pay off in the long run but again there'll be other teachers listen to this saying we're talking absolute nonsense here because kids got to learn at their own pace and if you stop ramping up the pressure then the anxiety comes and learning doesn't become fun anymore and so on and so forth it's a real tricky balance isn't it it, it, it is a really tricky balance and it's all about the spirit of it um um and, and it is i mean like one of one of the things that I saw when I was uh, I visited, uh, I, I've seen this in lots of different schools, but it's the most sort of overt example was I visited Michaela and just seeing a maths lesson where <laughs> the kids are in the middle of a, of a algebra lesson or something. They, 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 they the teacher stopped and said, okay, should we, should we do a workout? I can't remember the phrase it was, something like that. And they all went, oh yeah, yeah. And they said, which one would you like? And they, they had a selection. They were doubling, doubling. So they just did like doubling. And they just, you know, teacher gave the number, they doubled it. And then they check their answers and then who got 20 out of 20? Woo, 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 Mexican wave. It was like euphoric. Yes. It was joyful. Like, I, I thought that was just superb. And like, that, that's how to do it. It was totally doable. They had to try to get them all right. It was fun. It was, it was, expectations are embedded, but it, it wasn't like pressure. It was just, mm. how, you know, how do you do that? And there's a, there's a discipline embedded in that, but it's not oppressive. Those kids were enjoying it. Imagine that creating a culture in your seven where the kids are enjoying having fun, having a blast, you know, doubling a few numbers. It's, that's a culture that, that comes from people thinking, come on, guys, we're up for it. And uh, with rapid fire, took about three minutes of the whole thing. That's, that's, that's how to do it. Think about it. Make it joyful. If the teachers are going, oh, God, yeah, blah, 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 cracking it. And it's like the tone and it feels... <laughs> amazing how messaging comes from ourselves and we don't even need to think about what kind of messaging we give it's it's hard to control your own personality in a way but you you have to kind of think about do i do i overcook it i remember one of my first and most difficult first year of being a teacher one of the hardest things i did was have a meeting with some parents who had complained about me (laughs) uh because their daughter felt i was picking on her the whole time um, because every time I asked her a question, she got it wrong. And uh, it was just became this sort of crisis. I just, I didn't know what to do. And I, I, I said, I'm really glad you called in because we need to talk this through because I feel like now, whenever I ask you, I, I, if I ask you an easy question, you're going to feel like it's like yeah. embarrassing because it's too obvious. And But you do need to participate in the lessons. And we had to come up with this kind of way of dealing with it, kind of quite between us as a gr- group of people. But, it had reached this point where she felt like I was on her back. You know, I was making her feel bad on purpose and I wasn't, I just, I just, just seemed to be a run of like, Oh God, never mind. You got it wrong again. <laughs> it became awkward. And you know, what can you do in that situation? You, I wasn't going to say, well, you know, it's eight, it was a teaching A level maths. I'm saying that is, there are A level questions. Those, that is the standard. Um, so look, I mean, I, 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 this is a, a, a subtle one. But I, I think that the idea that you just allow people to find their own pace, um, it can lead to just mediocrity. It can be true. I mean, sometimes, you know, I, was, I used to be amazed by my son's capacity to improve the piano when he didn't practice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when 
because he needed time to kind of consolidate, you know, and it was almost, if you just said more practice, more practice, it was kind of put him off and it would all sound terrible and it wasn't getting better. And he used to say, give it a break, come back to it in a few days. And then amazing. No, that's just better than last time. How does that work even? But it was true. He needed a kind of like a gap. Um, like all kids, you know, give up a lot of kids who gave up in the end when the, when the, that balance became unsustainable. Yes. <laughs> but you know, you, most things we teach in school, we're not giving up. We're, we're on it. And so you've got to, you've got to, the motivation of incremental success has got to always be in there. Uh, this is where students are different and differentiation is about knowing the mo- motivators. I think Dylan William is interesting on this, you know, motivation and, and feedback is very individual ultimately. And, feedback needs to engineer improvement. So if feedback is making people feel terrible because the success rate is too low, then they need to enjoy more success, don't they? But some students are more motivated by higher level of difficulty and thrive better in a higher challenge situation and they might be in the same room. So you've got to find out, you've got to arrange your questions. All, all these things that should be kind of normal and accessible to to students that there's a difficulty levels are are available are kind of at different levels within a set of activities so you can gauge kind of exactly where someone should be uh, and give them the appropriate level of challenge for them to be motivated and pushed on it's neat but as mark was saying is if you've achieved this sort of nice level of homogeneity you know and everyone's all lined up and you can teach them all exactly the same great but if you haven't got that, you've got to flex it. Absolutely. Flipping out. Great, great answer, Tom. Great answer to that one. Um, Look, I've gone too long. Sorry. I, no, I, not at Tom. This, 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 this is why people tune into this to hear my guests go on. So this is this is perfect. Um, let me ask you this one. The final question um, about the, princ- the specific uh, nature of the principles. Are there any parts of the Rosenshine's principles that either you disagree with or that sound kind of good on paper, but with your experience of seeing them in action in schools, just aren't practically viable for any reason? Or are they all are they all are they all suitable to, to use in all schools? Um, they're all, I think they're all suitable, but they are generic and all strategies are need to be interpreted in a context of a subject. So that's, that's, that's the main caveat. You know, so the other day, someone on Twitter, I mean, I, I didn't reply to him. I just thought I'm not going to batter someone who's here, but said something like, yeah, these are great. We, we've made them our non-negotiables or something. And I just think, oh, mate, no, no, <laughs> no, stop, stop that with the non-negotiables. You know, thou must check for understanding it's, it's not a non-negotiable it's an it's a, a concept which a teacher at in that moment with that class and that subject needs to understand as a good practice that they that they could they should be thinking about but whether they decide to do a check for understanding thing is up to them because they're the one who has to get the outcomes they need to make a good choice to say it's non-negotiable is is bollocks I mean, and I say I, I don't like swearing, but Mark swore a lot, so I just thought if he can do it, so can I. <laughs> it, it's just not, you know what I mean. So the outsider who doesn't have to deli- 
coming in saying, oh, I didn't see a doctor checking or understanding. Well, you might, so you might probe them over time and say, are you doing that and how do you do it? So I think that's, that's key. Um, but so that, that, that's one thing. And, and yesterday I had a discussion, uh, you know, on, on Twitter and also in a DM with, um, Gianfranco Conti is the MFL guy from Malaysia who, you know, who is debating this, um, with various other people and, you know, does it questioning? just raising the question you know does this stuff apply in nfl does it all apply are, are they in some ways almost too simplistic um because you know the way it's interpreted yeah there's a lot more detail behind all of these things the way you actually do retrieval and practice in nfl isn't just a simple yeah rosenshine number whatever it's there's, there's actually layers of complexity behind that and there's a risk of just making it sound like a neat trick it's not it's a it's signposts a whole ton of things that you need to do in MFL to practice. And in a way, calling it one principle, it doesn't really mean much because it's just hundreds of things which go on in, in from practice in, in languages. So, see what I mean? It's like, that's, that's where we have to be careful. We're not, we're not and also, they don't all apply. It says it in the principles themselves, um, in the booklet that I wrote. A quote from the early paper, I think of the 1986 one, where, where Rosenshine says, um, the, the, there are limits to these teaching functions. They, they, they are, they are instructional strategies which deal with high knowledge content subjects, stru highly structured content, but they don't all apply to, you know, drama or art or, um, even sort of something like creative writing or something. They, they don't. I mean, they, it's not relevant to everything all the time. And that's really, really important. When you've got a strong knowledge base of material, which is typically going to be teacher expert, student novice, need a lot of instruction. Well, these are things you should be doing. These principles, these are ways to, to, to get that. But where there are other types of learning where you're trying to get students to, you know, generate ideas and so on, it's a different process. And of course it is. So that's 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 the important like giant caveat. This isn't like some universal set of instructions for how to teach everything ever. It's not. Um, it's a set of principles for instructional modes of teaching, which you use more, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, depending on the level of confidence of your students. And and, and the more advanced they are, the older, the more knowledgeable, the more quickly you're going to go to say more independent practice rather than the strongly guided practice which you need when they're more novice in their learning so again lots of caveats about where and when etc so yeah I, that that's my main kind of thing where i just think uh, you know needs to um needs to ha you know be in the right pocket but you know having said that it sort of applies massively well across a lot of of teaching scenarios and can, can I ask on this, just 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 thinking about um, schools who've perhaps bought copies of your book, um, ways to ways to make it as effective as possible. Because I'm assuming I don't want to put words in your mouth, but one way to not use these principles is just to stick posters up um, all around the school and and not mention it again. And I guess another way, and I've seen this in a couple of schools, is that you wouldn't advise is necessarily to turn this into a kind of lesson observation checklist where you've got these ten principles written down and people are observing lessons and essentially ticking them off every time they they see these things. So if if that isn't the way to to use the principles and use your 
Bob? What, what is the way to use it? What, what, what's, what's your dream? What, what do you want teachers and schools to do with your book, Tom? Um, oh, I just want to buy hundreds of copies and, and, <laughs> and, and, and <laughs> put them up on the shelf. No, I, I, I think that is the danger, having one, you know, walking around with it in your bag um, because you've got it. You know, that, that happens a lot. So I've got a bookshelves where I'm sitting next to them now with all these books, and I've read most of them. But some of them didn't really read them, even though I bought them. So, um, you know, it, that, that can happen. So what, what, what you need to do is you have processes, like I mentioned at the beginning, CPD processes, which get the ideas off the page into the classroom, tested, evaluated, and in loops of kind of regular evaluation. So what I suggest people do is they look at them uh, as a whole. You know, you give me, let's say people have bought a, cop a copy of the book for everyone or, or even just were circulating the, the free Rosenshine paper. Um, right, well, let's look at these instruct these principles. Um, now, I had a discussion with someone just the other day about her process in her school. What, would it be better to allocate um, people to groups? Or and my, my feeling is that the more invested in something yourself you are, the better. So if I was a teacher, I'd want to select myself um, who I worked with and on what. And I would say, I would let's work together, maybe subject specialist, um, usually that would be the main one, on maybe something like retrieval practice methods for you know um, weekly monthly review and developing some resources to support that. Let's, let's work on that together this year as a group. And that's what I'd want to be able to do. And then I would make that a real focus so that by the end of that year, I'd really got good at that. So that it was like a really secure part of my practice that I've got good resources and good methods in the lessons for having a range of ways of checking checking students' knowledge over time, reviewing it. And that, that would be a great win. But in order to do that, I'd be wanting to have regular time in a year to meet with the other people and say, "How what, what are you doing? Maybe observe them. How does it work for you? And I've seen that work brilliant at Oldham College. Exactly that, precisely that, that method. A, f a focus, regular meeting, observing each other, comparing ideas, evaluating, changing, focusing a bit more. Um, and and, that, and, then, and then the teachers, are, it's become a part of what they do all the time. And that, that's fantastic. Um, so that's what you'd need for the others as well. So there are some which are harder to diagnose for yourself, like you, you can, like checking for understanding. Am I doing cold calling questioning enough? Am I um, asking enough process questions? You, some people are better than others at knowing whether they've changed their practice enough. So that, that can mean building in some feedback external observation you know from an, someone else to, to come in and see or whatever so an observation process alongside can can be useful so that, that's how i, I think it, it's useful if you some teachers are quite capable and have the time to think about all all of it all at once and, and just sort of gradually improve but mo if you're doing that talk about a system, systematic approach with lots of different teachers you know, people selecting a focus for themselves with colleagues um, is is a bit, I'd say the the ultimate way of doing it. Got it. 
fantastic. That, that's great advice. And final kind of main, final main question from me, Tom. And we, we've mentioned Mark McCourt um, already a couple of times on this podcast. He tends to sneak his way into into most of my conversations with guests these days. And he makes the point that trends in education come in cycles of about thirty years. So I guess my question to you to end is: Do you think in thirty years' time people will still be talking about Rose and Shine, or, or will we look back upon that work in the same way that we now look back on VAK models with kind of a bit of derision and think oh god almighty why, why were we listening to things like that well what do you think will happen to rose and shine over time i i, I think um i i think that the ideas are um timeless <laughs> I really do. Uh, rose and shine might not be at attached to them anymore um because you know it's one guy and he wrote a really good paper and and there might be, um, uh, you know, an, in 30 years, a different, more popular synthesis of good instructional teaching methods, which people will talk about more. Who knows? Um, but, you know, they might be talking about the Barton method, you know, the Barton. Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> but, you know, the Barton 10, you know, that could be it. But they would be almost the same. And so I think the principles themselves will stand the test of time because, if you read, that's why people sometimes in a reassuring way, sometimes in a slightly weirdly irritated way, think it's just common sense because it is, you know, that's, you check for understanding, you, you sequence the model concepts, you, you, you know, you build scaffolding, you, you guide practice, then you make students work independently, etc. It's just, that's how you get students to understand things, which they previously didn't understand when the teacher is the person who does. And, and that is often going to be the way handing on knowledge from generation to generation is a massive part of education. Of course, there are other aspects of teaching which we which are not instructional. And I'm always key to say that. So there'll be cycles around that. For God, you know, that'll probably that that battle will ding dong forever. But there will always be a, a need for instructional teaching. It'd be interesting in mean, 30 years time, you know, with technology and so on, whether you know, you've got more interactive feedback systems, uh, more AI type feedback self-assessment tools, which are much more so ubiquitous that when you talk about retrieval, you know, everyone's the sense of that is that you just go onto the platform and check your knowledge through the, you know, the interactive, um, uh, you know, quizzing tool. That is just totally bread and butter, and no one even thinks about why you wouldn't use that because it's so good and useful. I mean, that, I, I can see that being the case. Um, so it's just that the, the devices, the idea that the teacher has to think about the questions, that would just probably be eventually that would become redundant because it, it not redundant, that sounds terrible, but it, it would just be so obvious in so many disciplines that the technology helps you do that really, really well. And that, that challenge of how do I involve all the students checking for understanding? Well, te tech, I mean, that's the best, that's the most obvious thing, isn't it? I think that's what most technology should be trying to do is help self-assessment but um you know that that will change but the idea that you you model and explain and um check for understanding i can't see that being old hat in 30 years 
<laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Well, Mark's coming back in 30 years to, to see if anyone's still chatting about mastery. So you can come back, Tom, as well for the 30th anniversary Rose and Shine special. So yeah, clear clear your diary. Uh, 2049, we'll we'll be back. Yeah, I'll be chatting about this. <laughs> right, final question from me, Tom. Before I let you go, what what are you working on at the moment? Because I've seen a few kind of cryptic tweets from you saying you've got a few projects on the go with um, Ollie Cav and stuff like this. Can you let us into any kind of world exclusives here? What what's coming next? Well, the thing I'm working on at the moment, which is which is very exciting, is uh, is called the Learning Rainforest Field Book, and it is um, half term was the kind of deadline, so um, was super deadline. So 30 schools I I encamp I uh, approached just before Christmas, and a couple since uh, have been writing a case study, um, and. Uh, I've, I've compiled them together into a book called the Learning Rainforest Field Book. And basically it's them telling their story about how some ideas that are linked to the Learning Rainforest are, have been developed in their school. And so you've got schools from sort of Gordonston in, in Scotland um, down to Penrice Academy in Cornwall and schools in Northern Ireland, Wales, London, all over England, and also some international schools, so a school in Thailand, South Africa, Lebanon, um, school in Long Island, Dublin. They're, so they've got five international schools as well. So there's 30 altogether, primary, secondary, special. I'm quite pleased with the mix. They've all written a kind of a case study, a few thousand words. And I'm, I'm bringing that together into a book, which is going to come out in the autumn. So Oliver's helping me um, just with some of the illustration aspects of that on that book. There's people with their own voices, a whole range of school leaders, teachers, NQTs, and it's covering things like their curriculum thinking, assessment thinking, teaching learning strategies they've tried out, CPD approaches. I, I think it's great. I mean, and I'm, I'm writing a kind of intro to each school, talking about my engagement with that school. So in, in the autumn, there'll be this book, which is an A4 landscape, but it's quite big, opens up quite nicely into this sort of visual thing where you can see the stories that each school has told about what they've been doing so i i hope people like that because it's kind of it's, it's 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 a diversity is interesting but also the common themes that come through i think is interesting and some people people will know in there like um claire seeley's written uh, for it john tomset has written for it um to, to tom reese a couple of schools from him you know i could keep naming so some interesting um people that sounds it sounds brilliant. So what I like about the sound of that, Tom, is um, is is it's one thing kind of having the theory, and I love the learning rainforest as you know because it's it's full of practical stuff as well. But it's it's one thing having the theory, but then as I found with my book, schools take core ideas and they interpret them in different ways, and they find ways of improving them, find ways of tweaking them, find ways of making them work for their circumstances, and it just it, it'll just be fascinating to see that range of uh, yeah range of different ways of taking the core ideas for, from the book so it, it yeah you must you must be dead proud of it no i so I, yeah and it's, it's for me it's just i just love the the and each school has got sort of student profiles in it so um, two three or four students saying things about what, what their favorite lesson is teachers they've enjoyed the last thing they studied so it's it's got the students in there as well so it's it's, it's hoping it's getting sort of curriculum teaching learning kind of like out into sort of some detail actually what did you actually do and Yes. Um, and, and, I, and I think that's, well, it's, it's, it's a good, so that's, that's 
coming out in the autumn. But the, the project that Oliver and I have been kind of like hinting at is that we had a meeting a, a, earlier and we're going to, I'm not going to say much more about it than at this moment, but we, we've got a project we're going to do, which will, I, I think safely by this time next year, it will all be, a, all be out. But um, it's, it's kind of using his design analysis and me kind of, my, my sort of hopefully some capacity to simplify teaching ideas into a communicable form into something which a lot of people will, will kind of hopefully find useful. So that's what we're going to be doing. Jeez, very cryptic. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll leave the public to stew yeah. on what, what that might be. I like yeah. it, Tom. I like it. And you'll be back on the show to talk about that, I hope, yeah, I hope whenever that yeah, comes That'd up. be great. Fantastic. Well, Tom, um, as ever, I, I always learn something whenever I'm lucky enough to speak to you at, at conferences or, or listen to you speak and do workshops at conferences and also the two two extended interviews that we've had on the show. So as I say, this definitely won't be the last time. And if I have anything to do with it, that you'll be back on this podcast because it's always fascinating. And your book is it's, it's a wonderful book. Um, it's come exactly at the right time. It's in the right format. And I think it's going to do a lot of good. So Tom Sherrington, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much so there you have it there was my second conversation with tom sherrington i really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as i did now it's it's difficult to know what to reflect upon in this takeaway because to be honest with you tom's book um on rosenshine is kind of like a bit of a takeaway in itself and i know i'll, I'll let you into a bit of a secret here uh, when tom was uh, putting the book out and um, he sent me a preview copy of it and he was a little bit concerned that it was too short that people were going to think well this isn't value for money it's not a big old chunky book like the learning rainforest was and like my how i wish i taught maths was but given the response given the sales figures given the feedback to it it seems there's a real appetite out there for this this more punchy form of educational book and there's an obvious reason for that of course and that's as teachers we're time poor we don't have time to wade through these these epics or we certainly don't have time to wade through a load of them over the course of a year so the way tom's book is condensed it's concise it's focused it looks beautiful you can get right to the point of it and and people are saying on twitter oh i've read it in an hour and it was absolutely fantastic and um, it reminds me um in many ways of peps mccray's book um books i should say and peps has um, been on the podcast before um peps spends loads of time thinking what's the minimum amount of words i can use to convey this concept without um without the meaning being lost without the subtleties being lost and his um his memorable teaching book is is absolutely fantastic for that because it's just straight to the point much like tom's book is so that's something i'm certainly going to bear in mind if i write a book in the future because i think how i wish i'd taught maths came in at 140,000 words you know and that's a flipping lot i mean i had a lot to say i had a lot of mistakes to reflect upon but there's yeah, there's uh, less is more um, is, is a phrase that I've certainly got to bear in mind for the future. Anyway, in terms of takeaways for, from this conversation, um, before we get on to Rose and Shine, um, I thought Tom's reflection at the start was interesting. There's no black and white when it when it comes to advice. Um, the danger is if you start saying do this, do that, um, it brings up it brings up barriers for people. And and if it's so kind of clear cut, like this works and this doesn't work, again, if you if you're in any way doubtful of that, or if it in any way kind of contradicts something you used to believe that you hold quite dear to you, then there's a danger that you kind of and I'm I'm certainly guilty of this myself. You you shut up sharp. You don't listen to the rest of the things. So um, 
what I what I'm really careful of when I do my training now and I'm lucky enough to work with teachers and work with maths departments or speak at conferences is I is I always say look what I'm going to talk to you about today is my own personal reflection I'm going to share with you what I used to do I'm going to share with you why I changed my mind. I'm going to share with you what I do now and how it seems to be working. And I'm also going to share with you the ways other schools and other departments and other teachers have taken these ideas, but tweaked them, tweaked them, adapted them to suit their needs, to suit their situation, their context, their relationship with their classes and so on. Because teachers know their kids better than anyone else. And the best I think I can do and the best anybody offering any kind of training or any just kind of support or advice just on a more informal, sorry, informal basis is simply present their ideas, justify why they they have them, why they hold them, explain as clearly as they can what they do, but then essentially throw the challenge to the other person and say, okay, take this and then think about it. What do you need to do, do you think, to tweak this, to adapt this, to make this work for you? And for me, I think that's a, a far more positive way to go about something, because then if, if a teacher's listening and thinks, I don't like that bit. I don't think that's going to work. I don't, I don't like that bit. But wait a minute, there's a bit. I think I could do something with that. If I've given that kind of introduction, I th- I th- I've tended to find teachers warm to it a bit more and are more willing to, to try. The shutters don't c- come down, if that makes sense. So I'm glad Tom reflected on that because, it's, again, it's reminded me of the importance of that, that there's sometimes... Well, the best advice in the world, if presented in the wrong way, um, it, it, yeah, it, it, it doesn't get through in a sense. Um, modeling. Let's talk a little bit about modeling. Um, modeling and worked examples is is probably been the single biggest change in my teaching over the last two years, two and a half years. And those of you who've heard me bang on about it before or have uh, read my book will know that when I do worked examples, um, I have a five stage process. I have my silent teacher where I model the example in silence. I have my narration and annotation phase, where I talk, I discuss, I draw students' attention to things on the board. I have a copy into book stage, but which is a focused, active stage of the process. I then have the your turn phase, where where students see if they can mimic what I've done in an example of their own. And then a show call phase, where um, I showcase students' work, both misconceptions and also examples of excellence. But part of this modelling, um, it, it's got to be active. There's got to be questions in there. If students just sat there kind of daydreaming, watching it, then it's really, really problematic. Now, I don't ask those questions whilst I'm initially doing the modelling. Silent teacher is silent. It's the kids are silent and I'm silent. I don't provoke a discussion at that point. But what I do do is um, by means of kind of learned behavior that I um, kind of help my kids develop is I get them asking questions. So those of you who've heard me talk recently will know that when I take my pen off the board and turn to face my students during silent teacher, that's their cue to ask themselves, what has he just done? What's he going to do next? To start to have this internal dialogue, to start to be a bit more actively engaged in the process. And then when I do my narration and annotation phase, it's not just me saying, this is what you do, this is what you do. I'm asking questions. I'm asking questions. Where did this five come from? What does this number represent? Why did I do this first and not that first? And I do this again to provoke my students to be a bit more actively involved in the process. So modeling for me, it's not a discussion heavy process like it used to be. I'm not saying to the kids every single second, what am I going to do next? What do you think, Tom? What do you think, Jen? Convince me of this, convince me of that. I'm not doing that anymore. But I'm also not 100% teacher led me taking full control because if the kids are just watching and they're not actively thinking hard about it, 
then it's not going to go in. And the final thing that from Tom that about this modeling bit that really resonated with me is that check for understanding is the key for this. Like if, if I'm not doing a check for understanding at some point, and for me, that tends to come in the your turn bit of the process when I'm wandering around the class and I'm having a look at kids' answers, then I have no idea whatsoever if things are going in. It reminds me of the interview I did with Naveen Rizvi um, uh, earlier this year, where Naveen said that kind of kids being silent, nodding their heads, smiling, that's that, that's no clue. That, that That's no evidence that they're understanding things. Anybody can do that. There's got to be some kind of check for understanding. And that's what that brings me to the third thing I wanted to take away um, from this podcast. Tom said it's his, for him it's his most important principle. And I, I agree. Check for understanding. If we're not doing that, we're, we're teaching with our eyes closed. We've no idea if, if things are going in or not. Uh, for me, I use diagnostic questions for check for understanding understanding because I find it a quick, efficient way of doing it, an accurate way of doing it. And also, given my kids' answers, they don't just tell me that this student knows it and this student doesn't know it. Based on the answer that my kids give, I get if the question's a good one, I get an insight into exactly where kids may be going wrong in the process. Why don't they understand it? Which misconception might they hold? And that information for me is vital because that allows me to... to tweak my intervention accordingly based on my students needs if i identify that they've got a specific misconception then i'm ahead of the game a bit i'm not having to play detective like i am if i just find out this kid's got it right and this kid's got it wrong so for me that's absolutely crucial um, i'm fascinated into technology's role in check for understanding in the future and um, we already see it a little bit with diagnostic questions when when kids are doing these for homework um the, the brunt force marking is taken out of the hands of the teacher and instead the teacher's given insights into into students understanding and therefore the teacher's time can be spent thinking right what am i going to do about that as opposed to plowing through 30 books ticking and crossing and these subtleties being lost in that in that process but i'm fascinated about the role of, of tech in the future for this and um I heard a rumor. Well, actually, actually, I knew this quite a few months ago when I was lucky enough to, to give her a lift to a, a research ed conference in in, uh, in Scotland. Uh, Daisy Christodoulou, her new book is going to be on um, ed tech and the role of technology um, in education. And I'm fascinated about this. Now, I don't know if Daisy's going to remember this, but she promised me that she'd come on the podcast for a world exclusive when this book's ready to go. So if you see Daisy, just remind her about that because she will, I mean, her two books have just blown my mind and she will have some fascinating take on the role of technology in education. Can't wait for that. Um, and the final thing I just wanted to reflect on is uh, just making an impact. And it goes back, it, we kind of come full circle in these takeaways. It comes back to to what, what does it take for, for ideas to spread and have an impact? And as I said at the start, it, it's not do this, do that. It's not this black and white approach. But it's also not just stick up a poster. And you see this, like I'm, I'm seeing this in schools when I wander around now, and it looks great. You get these posters of Rosenshine's principles. You get all these posters that Ollie Cav has, has designed, and they look amazing, and they're stuck around schools. But just like growth mindset posters for kids, is, is that enough to make a difference? Just kind of unconsciously being aware that these things are hung up around the school? I, I'm not so sure. For me, the key is, is long-term CPD. It's it's not these one-off sessions. It's not posters on the wall. It's, it's long-term CPD, CPD over time. And also, there's got to be some incentive in it to, to, to change if teachers want to. And for me, the simplest way to do this is, is to pair up with somebody and kind of 
make make some kind of commitment and it has to be just a simple one and i say to people when i run workshops um, at the end my closing thing is i say right have a think about today hopefully it's not been the worst experience of your lives and i'd like you to try and think of at most two but probably just one idea from today and what i want you to do is i, I want you to first off think of a class that you're going to try this with and I find that to be an important place to start. Pick a class you have a good relationship with. Pick a class that you think you're going to be up for it. Then pick a day, a specific day and a specific time that you're going to try this idea for the first time. Not something vague, like I'm going to do it in two weeks time, but I'm going to try this Wednesday period three. And then I want you to tell the person next to you. And finally, and this is the most important thing, I want you to tell the person next to you when you're going to let them know how it went. So I'm going to try Silent Teacher Wednesday, period three. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to meet you for lunch and I'm going to let you know how it went. Or that night, I'm going to send you a WhatsApp and let you know how it went. Because without that commitment, with the best will in the world, these things just, well, life takes over. The realities of the school day takes over. Things just get in the way and, and these things kind of drift, drift away. I've certainly found in my experience. But with this commitment to letting somebody know, it makes a difference. And schools can build that in over long term. Buddy people up, arranging regular structured ways for them to meet and let the other person know how it went. So there's a buy-in from both parties. And cross subjects is fascinating. My instinct has always been, and I say this in my book, I always think that maths is a bit special. Special is one word, weird is another word. Maths teachers, they, you know, they, they tend to stick together a lot of the time. And there's a feeling that what works in maths might not work in other subjects and certainly vice versa. I've certainly been guilty of, of thinking that in the past. But anytime I've been lucky enough to work with a subject, uh, sorry, teacher from another subject, it's been fascinating. It's been absolutely fascinating to, to see their, their techniques, what works in their subject, and then challenge myself to think, what can I learn from that? What can I take from that? And the more I see this in action in schools, the more I'm convinced that these cross-subject collaborations between teachers I think they're the way to go. There's definitely value in working with somebody who shares your subject, shares your expertise, shares your knowledge of the subject, because there are subject-specific techniques and ideas, but cross-curricular, there's a lot to be learned from that, if done in the right way, if done this long-term, teachers buying into it and having this commitment, having these incentives. Anyway, sorry for that ramble. They were just some of the things I've been thinking about having, having spoken to Tom. Anyway, um, if you're listening to this in order, so kind of July 2019, we're just going to do one more podcast to, to end the year. And it's we're going out with a bang. We're going out with Slice of Advice 2019, the return, the return, the what did I learn this year? It was one of my most popular episodes of last year, and I'm trying to get the band back together again. So, so listen out for that. But then you'll be pleased to know that I'm coming back. Well, hopefully <laughs> that's the... <laughs> Yeah, that, that's making a bit of a judgment there. Hopefully you'll be pleased to know that I'm coming back next year with loads of amazing guests, both maths and non-maths. I'm so excited with some of the people who are coming on this show. I'm dead excited. So um, hopefully I'll join you. You'll join me, sorry, for, for that last podcast. Uh, but in the meantime, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music you've heard throughout the show. For Tom Sherrington for giving up his time to speak to me today. It's a wonderful book. I strongly suggest that you go out and get it unless your school's flipping bought it for you. Dearie me, why, why aren't they buying all copies of How I Wish I'd Taught Maths? That's, that's the book you need. But anyway, 
I'll, I'll get over it. I'll get over it. Um, and thank you to you, my loyal listeners, for listening to this show. And um, if you do want to support the show, the easiest way is to just help spread the word. Tell a colleague, recommend an episode. Um, if you want to get involved and make a contribution via patreon.com forward slash Mr. Barton Maths, then feel free, but no obligation whatsoever. I do these for the love of it, not for the Mellow Birds. Anyway, you take care of yourselves. I'll speak to you soon. Bye for now. <laughs>